optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now we're the same time. What if I do the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. The answer is invariably Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. I recommended it, in fact, in the four-hour body. This is more than 10 years ago, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'd be very hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense and comprehensive formula on the market. It has multivitamins, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, adaptogens, and much more. I usually take it once or twice a day just to make sure I've covered my bases if I miss anything I'm not aware of. Of course, I focus on nutrient-dense meals to begin with. That's the basis. But Athletic Greens makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. From travel packets, I always have them in my bag when I'm zipping around. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS, as in Tim Ferriss show. Athleticgreens.com slash TFS. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hello, my dangerous, dainty friends. This is Tim Ferriss. This is another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where I try my best to deconstruct excellence and world-class performers. That means interviewing people who are the best at what they do, or one of the best at what they do, whether they're investors or chess prodigies, actors, athletes, everyone and anyone who fits the bill of top performer. I will try to dig into the habits, the routines, the favorite books, the meals, the meal timing, their sleep habits, meditation techniques, and so on and so forth to provide you with recipes that you can test. So not a whole bunch of highfalutin abstract concepts, although we explore some deep stuff, but the really tactical tools that you can implement on a daily, weekly basis to become better at whatever you do or want to do. And this episode is no exception. We have Whitney Cummings. Whitney is hilarious. Whitney is a Los Angeles-based comedian, actor, writer, and producer. She's a multi-hyphenate. And uh, let me rattle off just a few things. Uh, she's executive producer and, along with Michael Patrick King, co-creator of the Emmy-nominated CBS comedy Two Broke Girls. Not two broke curls, 
There are a lot of K's. Two broke girls. You've probably seen it, heard of it, observed the advertisements for it. It's all over the place, uh, which was recently picked up for a fifth season. She also wrote, produced, and starred in Whitney, which aired on NBC from 2011 to 2013. Not only that, outside of television, she has headlined with comics including Sarah Silverman, Louis C.K., Amy Schumer, Aziz Ansari, and many others. Lots of big names. She's famous for some other skills that we'll explore, like roasting other comics and celebrities. That is a fascinating and fun conversation that we dug into. Her first one-hour stand-up special, Money Shot, premiered on Comedy Central in 2010 and was nominated for an American Comedy Award. Her second stand-up special, Whitney Cummings' I Love You, debuted on Comedy Central in 2014. And she is shooting a third hour for HBO this August, which is set to air in 2016. In this conversation, we talk about her process for writing, both comedy and other types of writing, difference between fiction and nonfiction. We get really granular on how she develops her jokes. I ask her questions like, if you had eight weeks to take someone, i.e. me, who's terrified of stand-up, no experience, to get them ready for a real performance, what would those eight weeks of training look like? And we also turn back the clock, look at her childhood, look at the things that have formed her and informed her, the mistakes that she's made managing other people, lessons learned, uh, because she's had massive teams, hundreds of people, which I did not know. Uh, and we even delve into some very esoteric stuff like equine therapy, using horses for therapeutic work. Really fascinating. I love this conversation. I hope you do as well. And she is a very fun lady, making me laugh. So I hope you enjoy Whitney Cummings. And I usually say, without further ado, Whitney Cummings, but I've said Whitney Cummings like 17 times already in this intro. So Whitney Cummings, Whitney Cummings, Whitney Cummings, like Candyman. Enjoy. Whitney, dear, thank Hi. you so much for being on the show. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> I, I caught you <laughs> opening your beet juice. I have a lot. Look, I'm really into beverages. I don't know if you notice this about me. It's my you weird. You have a collection. I think I'm a hoarder. Uh, I'm really into hydrating. But like sneakily so, like nefarious hydration. It can never be actual water. It's always like something just eight, they cost $8. <laughs> right. Well, beet juice, I mean, a lot of uh, endurance athletes are big on beet juice. Well, that's what I'm here to tell you is that I've made my transition into being an endurance athlete. <laughs> that's my new career. That's why you're yep. grilling yep. Yep. the <laughs> American Ninja Warrior competitor who that's wandered right. wandered that's through why the I'm living room. I'm so many questions. And uh, yeah, no, I... Um, I feel like I didn't make a lot of great health decisions in my early 20s. So I feel like I'm overcompensating now with, you know, things like this. Better than going the other direction, right? You're like, you know, I was so healthy. (laughs) I was so orthorexic. I was a competitive athlete. But do you feel like our parents just kind of dropped the ball? I mean, now that we know so much about GMOs and high fructose corn syrup, I feel like I'm like on borrowed time. Well, I think that... Maybe they dropped the ball, but they didn't know they were carrying the ball in the first place. 100%. Yes. They didn't know that. So better. they have plausible deniability. Right. Right. <laughs> They'll be like, it's not my right. fault that I gave you chicken McNuggets. No. And I, I smoked when I was pregnant. Krispy Kreme. Oh, exactly. Fruity Pebbles every you morning. You wanted Cocoa Puffs for <laughs> right. breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, so I feel like I'm kind of like trying to uh, rectify a lot of that damage that was done. So, oh, look at this. I just noticed. So uh, I love you. How is that on your arm? I huh? got that for you. <laughs> I have Thank something you. else to tell you. <laughs> it's, 
<laughs> this is full of exciting confessions That's right so at the back. That's so funny that you just said uh, because as um, which you guys can't see, hopefully, unless you're a weirdo stalker, I have a white tattoo on my lower left forearm that says I love you. And I don't think anyone has ever noticed it huh. without me having to point it out. How is that That's so interesting. produced? I have another white one right here. Uh, oh, yeah. It's an anchor. Um, be, it's basically, this is like someone who's incredibly commitment phobic, who wants a tattoo, but doesn't want anybody to see it. Um, so that's one of my weaknesses, but is it, is it done with an, an electric needle without any ink? Nope. With white ink, but it has to go much deeper. So it's more like scarification. So it basically hurts like twice as much. So I am fascinated by that. And you tattoos. get twice as much pain, but half the half recognition, the recognition. <laughs> yeah. sounds like a lot of business ideas exactly. I've had. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Worst investment possible. The That's fascinating to me because I've never seen a tattoo like that before, but I read when I was in Japan as an exchange student, my first time abroad, when I was 15, I became obsessed with Yakuza tattoos and sort of deep traditional mm-hmm. tattoos that were associated with organized crime. Mm-hmm. And I read about this type of tattoo, which is pretty much exactly what you have on your arm, that would only become visible when the skin was flush at, say, the public baths. Wow. So if they wanted to keep it under wraps that they were an organized crime member, but then wanted to scare the shit out of everybody when they wow. were naked in the baths, wow. they would have like full back white tattoos. That is so cool. It's almost like yeah. black light tattoos today or something. I don't even know what a black There's light is. There's a black tattoo. light. You can do a black light tattoo. This is mostly for, I guess, people who do LSD and like special K, but you can do it with black light ink. So you can only see it under a black light. That's, that's got to be good for you. Yeah. This is so funny because I wrote my senior <laughs> honors thesis in college on tattooing. Really? Yeah. So I've, uh, now I think you also have, if I saw correctly, something on the back of one of your arms. Yes. I have a safety pin on the back of my right arm, which I always forget I have. Because I hit it so well that I always forget it's there. But what is the story of the safety pin? The safety pin is sort of um uh well the I love you is first uh for you, Tim. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I wanted to subtly <laughs> sort of a requirement for podcast guests. This is what I haven't really divulged. <laughs> Sign the release, you get the tattoo, totally. then we can talk. Right, right. I've been branded. Um I got the well, let me do them in order. I got the anchor right here. Um, on my wrist, Michael Patrick King and I uh, created a show called Two Broke Girls, which is on CBS. Michael Patrick King, you know, did Sex in the City. Mm-hmm. If you had a girlfriend at the time, you probably had to watch it. Uh, he did a show called The Comeback, which is a brilliant show. It is so well done, um, sort of about an aging actress in Hollywood and sexism in Hollywood. And it's just in- it's just incredibly well written and, and performed. And uh, we did Two Broke Girls together. Uh, simultaneously, I was doing a show on NBC, which was a sitcom as well as a talk show. So I was doing three shows simultaneously, which doing one is already I was gonna say glutton for punishment. A Herculean <laughs> task. So um so I was just I was having a hard time. Um I dealt with some just, you know, as a comedian, you know, I, I, you become a comedian because you want people to like you, you know, and then all of a sudden you're sort of thrust into the zeitgeist as like a public figure and then, you know, not everyone's gonna like you, which in stand-up is usually a good thing because it means you're being specific. You know, as you, I believe, say, mm-hmm. uh, when you try to please everybody, you please, please no nobody. one. Right, right, exactly. So mm-hmm. the idea is you want to polarize some people, but then all of a sudden when it's critics, you're like, wait a second. And then you right. recreate your childhood circumstances and you're like, dad? I mean, critics just become your dad <laughs> who won't accept you or your right. mom whose approval you're trying to get. So you just sort of time travel back into being a kid. And so that was really hard on me. And then... uh I just kind of eviscerated myself. I did everything wrong 
in terms of being a boss and managing my time and managing people's egos and depleting myself, which I've learned a lot in the last When you were years. working on these three when shows. When I was working on these three shoes. I, I was a, a perfect example of what to never do. This is before I knew about you, before I, you know, had a, I'm in a 12 step program for codependence um, called Al-Anon. Uh, and I do trauma therapy. Now I do all this stuff, whatever. But this is before I had any kind of that recovery or had done any work on my sort of neural pathways. I was using a lot of really old survival skills and I was like people pleasing and caretaking and I couldn't fire anyone and I was terrified to tell someone no and I couldn't have uncomfortable conversations and uh, I was all of a sudden the boss of like 400 people and I... That's a lot of it's people. It's a lot of people. That was not the number I expected, but then again, I haven't <laughs> yeah, worked well, three on. Different shows. I haven't worked on big TV shows. Yeah, it's a I mean, lot. I worked on a TV show, but it was very, very minimal. Four hundred people. It's a lot of people. Um, to I mean, it was just between three different shows. I have three staffs, two hundred each. You know, it was probably more like six hundred over the year. Um, and they're all looking to you for clarity and being decisive and just saying yes or no instead of well, I just I feel like I'm so sorry. It just I was so apologetic and so you know desperate for everyone's approval um which makes a great comedian terrible boss right <laughs> and uh and so i was just having a really hard time and i remember michael patrick king who's sort of one of my mentors he gave me a ring that had a uh, anchor on it just mm. sort of that you know he was like just stay grounded stay in your shoes because anytime someone come, would come to me i would just like abandon you know myself and just jump out of my skin to try and take care of them and manage them and please them instead of just um, keeping my feet on the ground. And then, of course, I promptly lost the ring. Uh, so I decided to get the tattoo of it in white, of course, because being on television, you have to go in like an hour early to get tattoos covered. And I don't want to give up, you know, an hour a day, five hours of my week. That's five minutes. To cut, that's right. Every. It's very interesting. Yeah. Every, you know, an hour a day times five days a week. Yeah. That's, you know, five hours of tattoo covering, which I just don't have time. So hence the white. And then the safety pin was sort of, um, I grew up in, this is not funny. We're going to get funny. Uh, in we don't kind have of, to be all funny. <laughs> in kind of an unsafe uh, environment. And uh, my parents would argue a lot when I was a kid. And I used to play with, we didn't have a lot of money. <laughs> I was poor. Safety pins were my toys. I just remember playing with safety pins. And I remember opening them and closing them. And I just remember, that was just, I did EMDR, which is like a um, a trauma thing. Eye movement. Eye movement, uh, desensitate desensitization. Yeah. You can say that word. Desensitization and reprogramming. Got it. Which and involves using eye movements. Exactly. For overcoming trauma or to basically reprogram your trauma in terms of putting them into a uh, putting your trauma into a different folder like in I layman's see. terms. So the way that my trauma therapist explained it to me was you remember the episode in I Love Lucy when there was the conveyor belt sure. of was it the bonbons or was it I bottles with gloves? I, I want to say it was bottles. I want to say it was bottles and she was putting the glove on it. That yeah. was in the open. But anyway, so she explains it as our brains take in three billion pieces of information a second, right? So, you know, Tim's shirt is, you know, camouflage and how he feels, how he looks, how this house feels, trampoline outside. That's a longer story, listeners. Yeah. Uh, there's a trampoline that all I want to do is leave this podcast and go jump on it. Um, and, uh, and then when we get traumatized, our brain freezes. Uh, but the information keeps coming in. So if right now someone came in and held up a gun to our heads, right. the information would still come in, white walls, wooden, uh, Apple computer, this cactus, and then it would be filed into the folder of trauma. Right. So later in five years, I'm sitting at dinner and all of a sudden there's a cactus and I'm anxious and stressed out and accused, I don't know why. Right. Exactly. And I'm triggered, you know, so it's like reprogramming some of those triggers into a folder that is more benign. Got it. Essentially. Um, and th so did the tattoo come after that 
EMDR? Yes. Yes. Got it. Yeah. When I started doing EMDR and sort of like getting into sort of like um, neurological recovery, essentially from trauma. And was the was the safety pin a trigger for negative feelings? And if so, why did you choose to put it on your arm? That's interesting. It was kind of my, and it wasn't necessarily a trigger for me. I think it was more like a symbol for me of sort of a time. I think, I think this is, sounds kind of corny, but like it was open when I was a kid and I would sort of like, you know, not in like a um, masochistic way, but I would sort of like prick myself with it when yeah. things would get, it was just like a tick kind of sure. like how someone bites their nails or something. And so I sort of closed it. So the tattoo is a closed safety pin that's sort of like, right. you're safe, it's over. Because a lot of Got times, it. if you have any kind of trauma as a kid, you become an adult and you constantly are recreating your childhood circumstances and having these completely obsolete, inappropriate feelings to present situations. So I had a, you know, was working with somebody who triggered all these feelings mm. that my family of origin used to cause. And it was like, this is a completely inappropriate reaction. This is an employee who works for me who's trying to get a script done. And all of a sudden I'm like, you know, reliving these historical wounds. It's right. not appropriate. So I think it was sort of me really trying to put an end to that story mm-hmm. and respond to present circumstances with present appropriate emotions. Got it. If that makes any sense. That does make sense. And the I love you? I love you is um couple things. Uh, my last special was called I Love You, uh, but I actually did that after I got the tattoo. I... Um, interesting. I'm trying to like figure out how to say this without seeming like ridiculous, but something that I, I sound ridiculous okay. the entire time I'm on the podcast. So <laughs> okay, good. Feel free to bounce. Maybe me out. you know what? I mean, I'm just admitting like pretty embarrassing. It's pretty hard to embarrass me, but this, but any kind of vulnerability tends to be a little bit embarrassing for a comedian. Um, I was struggling a little bit with patience and compassion and, um, Again, I'm codependent or like I grew up in an alcoholic home, which a lot of times people get, uh, uh, we have a lot of trouble with patience and control and we want everyone to do what we want to do when we want it to be done. And that's sort of how we survived as children is if I can just organize my drinks in the right row, I'm going to be fine, you know? Right. And I found myself and I travel a tremendous amount, um, as I'm sure you do also, or and I have in the past. And I just found myself getting frustrated with people not doing things my way. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever... <laughs> yeah, it's like every minute of every <laughs> hour okay. of my life. Okay, so I might have a pamphlet for you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I found myself just being... And I think that's one of the reasons I gravitated towards being a writer and a comedian is I get to do it all on my own. Right. You know, I write the material, I perform it, I critique it, I rewrite it, I tour, I do everything on my own because uh, when other people get involved, I just, uh, you know, it's inefficient and I don't like the way you're doing things. I don't like right. the way you're saying that. I don't like the way you're sitting. Like just everything. So Sounds it, really uh, low stress to have 600 people it, it, constantly <laughs> just <laughs> working on projects here. I know, exactly. Like, is he wearing flip flops to work? I mean, it was just it was like, <laughs> just a way to not focus on myself. And I think ultimately, sometimes when we, judge other people. It's just a way to not look at ourselves sure. or as a, you know, way to feel superior or sanctimonious or whatever. So, um, my trauma therapist said like, every time you meet someone just in your head, say, I love you before you have a conversation with them. And that conversation is going to go a lot better. Cool. I like it was that. just an interesting little trick for 28 days, which is how long it takes to make a neural pathway, a new neural pathway. Um, I would just, uh, when I meet someone in my head, whether it's the lady at the DMV who's making me wait two hours and essentially, it's just the notion of everybody is doing the best they can with what they have, yeah. which is really hard for a lot of us to accept. Super hard. This is I'm enjoying this because uh, I've been trying to work on a lot of these weaknesses that I have, which fall pretty squarely right into the impatient dick category. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, 
very perfectionist, yeah. uh, very meticulous in sometimes a helpful detail oriented way, oftentimes in a like monkish mm-hmm. overbearing way. Yeah. And which works uh, great when you're writing a book yourself, but when all of a sudden you're getting a relationship or have employees, doesn't work as well. Or have other people involved in the process, right. you become, you know, a problem author, which yeah. is sort of my label. Yeah. Uh, and there, <laughs> there are pros and cons to being a problem author. Um, you get the cover you want, but then, you know, so and so at the publisher wants to stab you in the face with the right. pencil. Right. Uh, repeatedly. And, I'm just uh, glad people still use pencils. <laughs> I'm not sure. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really clawing my way through vo- vocab. I'm, I'm decaffeinated at the moment. But, uh, the, um, two things that very related that really helped me were one, uh, always assuming that people are fighting battles you know nothing yeah, about, yeah. right? Like everyone's fighting some intense battle internally that you know nothing about. Number and one. And something that is a battle for them might be super easy for you. Right. You know, and yeah. that's, I think my dad said something really who is not known for excellent advice, but he said something to me, um, once that was super helpful because I was having a lot of trouble, um, in relationships where I felt like I wasn't getting my needs met. And, uh, he was like, you just have to understand how strong you come off. Like people don't think you need anything. Right. So that's why people don't help you. And it was this interesting thing where I was like, oh, so, I mean, I have a lot of weaknesses and I'm bad at a lot of things. But when I'm good at something, which maybe you can relate to, I'm really good at it. Right. Because I've just worked really hard at it. So I'm really good at things that a lot of people might not be and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I'm like, how come he hasn't finished that book yet? How right. could he? It's been two days. Right. And it's like, okay, not everyone reads a book or whatever it is, yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah, exactly. Being Having compassion for everybody. Yeah, not something that comes naturally, Mm-mm. uh, to me mm-hmm. at least. Uh, and it's not that I'm a complete, like, apathetic serial killer or whatever. It's, um, but the impatience is really pronounced. One of my favorite, uh, quotes, one of my favorite people is Catherine Hepburn. And in a Philadelphia story, I think it was Cary Grant said, you, ha- uh, to Catherine Hepburn's character, you have no tolerance for human weakness. Mm. And I remember that resonating a little bit. Yeah. Which, is it's it's easy to rationalize at least i find ways to rationalize why it's acceptable mm-hmm. but you just leave this sort of string of collateral damage yeah. and uh the uh the <laughs> the two things that that brought to mind for me were one i remember somebody told me you know if you walk outside and you go about your day and you meet an asshole that person's an asshole if you walk outside and everyone you meet is an asshole you're, you're the, the asshole, asshole. <laughs> I love that. That's great. And so whenever I have one of those days where I'm like, man, everybody's so ungrateful and they're such assholes. I'm like, well, wait a second now. Wait a second. I'm the common denominator in all these interactions. This is more my problem. That was exactly. So that was my way of uh, just, it's a shortcut. And it's, it's as soon as I meet someone in my head, I just say, I love you. That's the starting point. And then, yeah, I love you. Can I please get a diet coke with it whatever i mean yeah. for ev- everybody mr and it, tsa can you please exactly. not drop my computer right, thank as you a, i'm getting felt up by the tsa guy um you and, too another <laughs> well i'm tsa pre now so um <laughs> that's, at least I get that's, felt, the, that's I, like third base i get yeah. felt up with my shoes on <laughs> oh yeah right <laughs> um and another thing that was super helpful because at least in my field i don't know the case for yours i can't speak to it but a lot of people who are in a performance-based field whether it's writing acting um as this is a huge generalization, but you can sometimes assume they didn't get a ton of attention as a child or need more attention than most. They have a compulsion to be 
need to be seen and heard and appreciated. And humor is usually developed as a shield slash defense mechanism. Right. So what were they defending against? We don't know, but it was something. Everyone had a thing they had to defend, defend against as a child. My last name is Cummings. That was probably what I was managing <laughs> as a child um, and uh, whatever was going on in my household. So you get a bunch of really fragile people who have all these defense mechanisms in one room yep. to constantly show up every day to be rejected because you're in a writer's room. All you're doing is pitching and the boss is saying, no, 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 no. And you're just hearing no all day. You're not good enough. You're not funny enough, which is what we all translate to. So a bunch of really fragile, sensitive people in one room and uh, who may or may not have done the kind of recovery that I've committed to or therapy. We always assume everyone works as hard on ourselves as we do. They yeah. don't, you know? Well, that, that brings up a, a couple of things for me. One is I have at points tried to chill the fuck out. And <laughs> uh, that takes many forms. Uh, meditation has been very helpful. I do have a simple sort of daily morning meditation practice. After two of my friends were just like, you're being an idiot. Maybe you should try high strung sitting, or sitting still. Uh, just I find sitting still and focus, returning my attention to something, whether that's breath or a sound or a word for 20 minutes a day allows me not to feel overwhelmed. Yeah. That is due to over responding to things imaginary or outside of my control. Mm -hmm. But what I wonder is for you, I've sometimes thought, you know what? I'm impatient, but I don't want to totally fix it. I want to dial it back, but I don't want to totally fix it because there are a lot of benefits it's that come from being impatient. impatient. Yes. Sometimes. It's a strength in moderation. Or sometimes in extremes. I mean, in the, then we could, we could dig into that, but do you, do you worry or have you experienced that doing the work that you've done, uh, has negatively impacted your comedy in any way? Doing the work I've done has it? Oh, the work so I've done. I see. On so, my like removing defects. the removing the shield or yes. reducing that codependency. Great. Great has question. it removed some of the Great magic? Question. Great question. Um, I think the short answer is no. Uh, one of my biggest fears when I went into uh, a recovery program and intensive therapy, like not talk therapy, like trauma therapy, which is actually kind of the opposite of talk therapy because talk therapy largely, I'm not um, disapproving of therapy, but for me personally, um, mine has more of a neurological perspective, which is when you have some kind of trauma and you talk about it, you just re-embed the trauma and it actually makes it worse. Right. Um, so I do like, I can't talk about a certain topic for 28 days. I have to replace a negative thought with a positive thought for 28 days. I mean, it's like a pretty hard work. I got really worried. I was like, you know, talking to my, um, therapist and a bunch of people in my program. And I was like, I'm just really afraid that I'm not going to be as funny right? if I'm not as dark and in pain all the time. And it was actually the opposite because I waste so much time trying to manage, you know, unhealthy relationships and the, you know, having low self-esteem and my perfectionism, which can be really paralyzing, you know, perfect perfectionism leads to procrastination, which leads to paralysis. So I could go a couple of days without getting any writing done because my self-esteem was too low. I didn't think I was good enough. And just these old sort of obsolete messages and uh, survival instincts. And um, I think that it has given me so much more en mental energy, physical energy. Um, I have much more balance in my life now, and I'm much more productive and much more vulnerable, which as a writer, you have to be vulnerable. I think before I was so overworked, I was such a chronic workaholic um, that I didn't have a life. Mm -hmm. And in order for art to imitate life, you have to have a life. <laughs> That's I, a really profound I, statement. For me, yeah. art was imitating art 
because I was all I was doing was working. Which turns into this weird like recursive, yeah, funny self-reflexive, yeah. And then all of a sudden I'm just in like it's just so meta. And I'm sitting in there, and I remember being in the writers' room in the second season of a. Uh, TV show about sort of relationships and someone's like, oh, what if they go to a baby shower? And I'm like, no one goes to baby showers. And everyone in the room was like, yeah, you don't. <laughs> but most people do on a Sunday go to a baby shower. And I was like, oh my God, I was just so work. I was so myopic. Yeah. And I was so, I hadn't had a conversation, you know, this is going to come off bad, but I'm just going to be honest. I hadn't had a conversation with someone that I didn't pay in months. Wow. Which is scary. Now, pay, not meaning you've paid them to talk to you, but an employee. I've been, yeah, I only talk to therapists. <laughs> <laughs> no one else is allowed Here's to Here's your script. <laughs> You'll note the compliments are all in column B. Right, right, right. And proceed. Memorize it before you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't hate that idea. That's how sick I am. Um, but yeah, I didn't, I hadn't had like an organic, healthy, sort of conversation with someone, not that the people that I hire are like obsequious to me and won't, you know, walk on eggshells Ooh, around good me. Good word. That is a good word. That is, that a, is good a good word. word. Um, just GRE'd my ass. Not bad. Not word. bad. I don't use it often, but that felt like the right context. <laughs> but when word. I do. But when I do, it comes in with a plum. It comes in hard. And so I felt like, um, you know, it was really important to me to have balance. Like I didn't have any hobbies. Like I, I had to, I got assigned homework from my trauma therapist that I had to do two, uh, two hours a week chunks of something that was purely fun mm -hmm. with no work motives. Right. Purely. So I took up uh, equine therapy um, and like some other hobbies and stuff, but it was really a struggle. I was like, I can do that. And I mean, like an hour in, I was restless. I was felt unproductive. I felt like, you know, I was making notes in my phone. I'm like working. <laughs> I realized like working how, on the material. Oh my God, I'm doing bits with horses. What's the deal? <laughs> I mean, I was like, it was, it was a struggle. <laughs> and I mean, even like listening to podcasts or I was always a motive of like, oh, I can get a joke out of this or if I listen, right. to, you know, and it was, it made me realize how, uh, work driven I was. What was the, so going from burning the candle at both ends, workaholic, what was the kind of defining moment where you're like, no more, like I can't continue yeah. this way? What was the conversation or the day or the experience? Which, that by was the way, in the workaholism, and you know more about this than anyone, a lot of it was busyness. It wasn't right. actual work. Right. I was taking on a lot of tasks that I had no business doing just because I had been so sort of, um, I think one of the most important things you can do as an artist or in any field, I can really only speak to comedians, actors, writers, performers, is to get a handle on your issues. Mm -hmm. Like, but you will never be successful if you're dysfunctional in your relationships and with your employees and stuff. If you have trust issues, if you have abandonment issues, if you're a narcissist, whatever it is, you know, um, if you are controlling, because I found like, I remember when I was, I was so apologetic and I was so afraid to ask for help. Yeah. That I was doing everybody's job. Right. Which ends up disenfranchising them. They get pissed. Insulting. They feel they feel micromanaged. Yeah. They feel micromanaged. They and feel And then you can't ultimately pick up all that slack. Yes. And I'm exhausting myself and making them feel bad. Nope. Right. Everybody loses. And I remember I was like punching holes in a script and there was like f literally 40 other people in that room <laughs> who wanted to do it. I mean, I just had a bunch of employees that were like, can we please do something? Yeah. They were so bored. And I was like, I got it. I got it. I was just so coming from stand-up comedy. I'm so yeah. used to doing everything myself sure. that asking for help, I realized how hard it was for me. So there's no point in having a great script or being a great writer or actor if you can't let people help you. Yeah. Um, so I, I think a lot of, I, I realized because again, being like you and I, um, just in terms of your, you know, impatience and all that, right. like 
it works really well up into a certain point. So yeah. all of these defects had worked really well for me until I had a staff. Right. Until I had people who were I had to collaborate with. And all of a sudden, I'm like, um, was sort of a codependent mess. <laughs> What's wrong with you people? Oh, wait. I know. Why doesn't every, <laughs> if you were all just psychic and did everything my way, everything would be fine. Um, and so I think that when I realized that I couldn't fire someone, like, I mean, I literally would get a pit in my stomach when I had to tell someone that I, you know, didn't like their script or didn't like their joke. I realized I was like, I can't believe how hard it is for me to feel like I'm disappointing someone or just to tell the truth, quite frankly. Right, I had right. so, I was so apologetic and afraid of people not liking me. Sure. That, uh, it was really paralyzing and really, uh, unproductive and slowed down the writing process. Uh, confused employees. I remember in the room, like, you know, people would pitch jokes and I would just say yes to all of them because oh, I didn't want to hurt uh -oh. anyone's feelings. And then I have to go later and change it. And then all of a sudden they, the script comes out and their jokes aren't there and they feel betrayed and lied to. And, you know, a phrase that I love that when I first went into Alan and I heard someone said, uh, people pleasing is a form of assholery. <laughs> which I just loved yeah. because you're not pleasing anybody. You're just sure. making them resentful because you're being disingenuous yeah. and you're also not giving them the dignity of their own experience and assuming they can't handle sure. the truth. Yeah. It's so, you know, patronizing. Um, yeah. It's, and, it's a, uh, it's a bandaid that hurts a lot when it gets ripped off. Yeah. And uh, just, there's a very short book called lying by Sam Harris, who's a PhD in neuroscience. It's been on the podcast, which digs into a lot of this in a very interesting way. Where Don't you think, we tell like 30 lies a day or something? Oh, I'm sure it's, uh, I, Three, three hundred, thirty. <laughs> Who knows? I think it depends on the it depends on the person, the person or which yeah. politician you're listening to. But the uh, the point being, like when you tell white lies mm -hmm. or you omit certain things, uh, they can ultimately have the same negative impact as an outright kind of bold faced yeah. lie to someone. Uh, so I, I apologize for interrupting. No, no, but, that's super. Uh, that's, I love that. The I want to come back to one thing you mentioned, which is. Uh, Actually, before I do that, so was there a particular breaking point where you're like, I need to address this? Yes. And I, again, I wish I had, I wish I lied more, actually. I probably <laughs> <laughs> should lie and in into your response to this question. I um, got pneumonia and I didn't notice. Hmm. And it got really bad and uh, turned into something called Costco chondritis. Sounds bad. Which is, it does sound, Costco? you get it at Costco. <laughs> it's The good news, it's really affordable. Right. <laughs> and it's um, basically the <laughs> infection from the pneumonia gets uh, in the muscles of your chest, which is called pleurisy, which people got like in like the Civil War. Right. I mean, it's like nobody gets this. Like you have to right. go so long without that taking care of polio. It's like, and uh, and then it gets, um, inflames the cartilage under your rib cage. So it starts to just sort of your chest is really sore. And essentially I just wasn't taking care of myself because I was right. so busy. I mean, I was sleeping like four hours a night and was in, had to be in every meeting and every editing session. And when I rewriting, I was writing four scripts at a time and I was just super overextended. I had some family things happen. My mom had a stroke. Um, I had a family member going to rehab and I just had no concept of boundaries and you can't give what you don't have. I was the queen of giving everything away, all my energy, all my time, all my money, all my, you know, I was like, I would cook a five course meal for you, but then I wouldn't eat dinner, you know? And so I think, uh, you know, I had this doctor say to me, you know, he's like, you're killing yourself, you know, like you really like, need to figure out a way to be healthier because, and that's when I kind of learned about neurology and stress and 
cortisol and and adrenaline and epinephrine and and how damaging they can be on your body and um you know i was like i'm 27 and i have three jobs this is awesome but right. then it's all fun and games until you know until it's not until yeah you have <laughs> leprosy <laughs> <laughs> right. until your lungs yeah exactly fall out of your armpits yeah, like, it's all just, fun and games i just remember being like and i i think that to that point i remember you know being the doctor and and having this realization because you know i grew up on Roseanne and Mad About You and Three's Company and like these like multicams and I love comedy. I love comedians. I remember being like, I'm living my dream at 27. I have everything I wanted for my whole life and I'm not enjoying it. Hmm. I'm at the doctor and I have pneumonia and I'm like, you know, managing people's egos instead of just like having a great time. What's allowed you or what are the things, and this comes back to something you said about being very, very good at some things and very, very, very bad at mm-hmm. others. And I'd be curious to know what you think the factors or beliefs or behaviors were uh, that allowed you to get to that point at 27. I mean, a lot of people would say, holy shit, that's really young. How mm-hmm. would you get to that point mm-hmm. uh, from a success standpoint professionally? Right. What were the things that, that contributed to that? That got me to success? Yeah. I I failed so many times and... Um, wasn't deterred by it. I, for whatever reason, saw failure as practice instead of as the end, the finish line, you know, mm-hmm. if that is, makes any sense. Like I, sense. I wrote three pilots before anyone even read a pilot I had written. I, um, now pilot for those people who are not sort of in mm-hmm. the business, that's, is that a single episode on spec? It's a single episode of like the, basically the first episode of a TV show, which is sort of has to introduce all the characters and it's just a little different than a traditional episode and it right. has to be introduce the world and be very specific. So I wrote one about um, the news in 2040 and it was like about a news station and the news in 2040 and it was kind of this apocalyptic take on what the news was going to be like and the screen was like all covered in ads and all of the newscasters <laughs> dressed like NASCAR drivers with like brands all over right. them. And, you know, they literally every other sentence they said, you know, they'd be like, you know, so Costco's, you know, Cincinnati is 72 degrees. Like every state was sponsored by an ad. It was just kind of a ridiculous um, sort of hyperbolic sort of um, thing and sort of about you know, there's a drought and there's no water and it was, it was like 180 degrees out. It was just kind of this really, Which may end up not being far from say, the truth. It might yeah. just be a documentary. <laughs> um, so I, 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 and everyone thought that was kind of insane and, and no one really read it. And then I wrote, um, one that was, uh, based on this book called, um, uh, uh, it was about something about, it was like a psychology book. I think it was called, uh, the, uh, I don't remember, but it was about the 14 different kinds of personalities, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah. uh, and I wrote about three sisters that had the same mother, but three different fathers and how those three different personality types produce different sort of girls sure. and their relationship. Fox didn't pick that up. I wrote um, a pilot for Comedy Central, uh, which I still today till today think is the best thing I've ever written. It was about it was based on me and about a, a, just me. Uh, falling in love with a guy who's in AA and he can't date anyone outside of AA. So I pretend to be an alcoholic (laughs) (laughs) to get in his life. (laughs) And I go to AA and pretend I'm getting sober to like get in his life. And then I fake a relapse 
in to get his attention in the pilot and then have to like drink all, and then actually become an alcoholic. <laughs> it's this really ridiculous <laughs> premise. And uh, and they didn't pick that up, but that's what Michael Patrick King read that made him interested in me to write uh, two more girls with him. So everything that I – and then I wrote a spec for a pilot that didn't even go that was Dane Cook's pilot or something. So I was just constantly – you know, I see back at the wheel, back at yeah, the wheel. Yeah, I see comedy and writing like med school. It's like this is the only profession where people think they should be famous and be making millions of dollars two years in. It's like doctors go to med school for ten years, right. twelve years. Like, yeah. it's not that different. That's really interesting. Yeah, I had uh, Adam Gazali, who's a neuroscientist at UCSF, on the podcast, and he was like, "I was in school for eighteen years." Yeah. And it's just like, wow. Yeah. That is. I have comedians come up to me now because with YouTube and how famous everyone gets so fast or some visibility, which I think is great, the democratization of comedy and and entertainment. But people like three years in are like, I just, I'm working on a sitcom and I don't have an agent. And I'm like, you should, in six years, we'll talk. Right. Get good and then we'll talk. There's this entitlement now of I have 10 minutes of jokes and like where's my sitcom right you know it's like it's like a doctor going to school for two years and being like i think i'm ready to operate it's like no like i'll see you in 10 years yeah well there's a there's an expression in um i think i'm getting this right in japanese just like hiyasi sameyasi which is like gets hot easy that which gets hot easily gets cold easily but i mean it's 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 usually referred to people who find a passion that they're really excited about and they go all in and then quickly drop it, which is kind of, I guess, my entire business model. But the, <laughs> uh, the, uh, the, I, I think that can be applied to so many different industries and skill sets. And so, for instance, I get asked all the time because I've written a handful of books that have, that have, uh, done decently well. Uh, how do I hit the, the bestseller list? And my point is you can game hitting the bestseller list. You cannot game staying on the bestseller list. And the latter should, the latter should be your focus. And they're like, well, how should I market my book? And I'm like, it starts with writing a good book because that is how you sort of perpetuate and, uh, the popularity and get the word of mouth. And I think it's, it's, I mean, that's a sort of a content. This last point. thing you want is to make the bestseller list. And I'm really, like, yeah, it wasn't that good. Yeah. You know, because that's like the hype syndrome of yeah. like... And then it drops off. And yeah. I think that um, yeah, if you haven't built that foundation, it's very hard to have any sustained success, uh, yeah. which is why certain people like, I mean, Justin Bieber, very impressive that he came out of that sort of uh, YouTube yeah. farming, you know, scout, yeah. scouting area and has been able to sustain it as long as he has. I mean, granted, I'm sure he's dealt with his own, yeah, I mean, his own, his own stuff, but... Uh, no one should be famous at 20. Could you imagine if you were famous at 20? No. The things you did when you were... And yeah. by the way, imagine, my judgment, My judgment was bad imagine enough. Imagine you at 20 with $50 million. Well, right. It's kind of like take every bad decision and pour gasoline on it. <laughs> if I had yeah. been had $50 million at 20, so many people would be dead. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, horrible things would have happened. Uh, when you do your best writing... Uh, whether that's the pilot that you mentioned about, that involves AA <laughs> or anything else, when you do your best writing, uh, what does the process look like? When you look back at like the best stuff you've done, mm-hmm. what contributed to that writing? It's awful. It's awful. It's awful. Writing is awful. It's, I agree with that. It's not sexy. It's not glamorous. It's not easy. It's the the more I've done it, the harder it's gotten. Yeah. Uh, you know, because you don't want to become a parody of yourself. Sure. You don't want to keep, you know, doing the same things. You get sort of disgusted by your own 
instincts, you know, I've written that joke, I've written that character, like, and then, you know, it's gotten a little bit better because my inner monologue is a little bit nicer to me these days. <laughs> you know, I've worked on that. I've worked right. on detaching from my negative, uh, beating myself up, but writing is, um, writing's nasty, you know, and, you know, I've, I've also gotten better as I've learned about neurology in terms of like not trying to multitask, not, you right. know, I, my internet's cut off when I write. I don't have my phone near me. Um, I don't try to edit and write simultaneously. Do you do sort of brainstorming or first drafts on a computer or yep. by hand? You do on a I computer. I am really, um, very, uh, meticulous i'm which i think a lot of people have shame about a lot of people want to be like no i just like i don't i'm not like uh wing it i don't wing it i write things out i'm very dorky it's note cards it's you know 30 pages of a word document of just all my thoughts and then i put my dialogue into the entire script goes into a word document before i even open final draft so i'm pretty much done with it in a word document with the dialogue because I don't like to write in final draft because it's just harder to go back and edit. Okay, got it. And because writing and editing are two separate parts of the brain, going back and forth is just kind of paralyzes me. Sure. It's, 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 I'm very easy to, uh, it's very easy for me to collapse. <laughs> so I really, I just, I think the, the most important thing is just knowing your strengths and weaknesses. So I know that it's hard for me to stay focused if I'm looking at a, uh, uh, um, a final draft document and seeing the names of the characters, I feel like, oh my god, I'm, I'm screwing this up. This sucks. This Too sucks. many inputs. Yeah. I like it to suck in Word, so the aesthetic of it is, oh, this is just a rough thing. It doesn't have right. to be good yet. Right, right, right. When it's in final draft, I'm like, that's interesting. The aesthetic, I'm like, makes oh, this you is... feel like it yes. should be better. This st- exactly. When I see the form of final draft, it's like, oh my god, I suck. I that's suck. What really am I doing fascinating. here? So I've I've learned how to sort of like quell my own fears and anxieties. Um, it's a lot of pacing. It's a lot of eating. It's a lot of going on walks. It's a lot of... Do you have a set time or did you? like when During these periods where you, where you felt like you put out really good work, and that could be now, obviously, but uh, morning, night, middle of the night, coffee, wine? like What's the cocktail look like? The whole like? thing. I do not drink pretty mm-hmm. much. Um, when I'm writing, I try not to drink at all because yeah. I think... Um, since I've started eating so healthy, my body just metabolizes out. I mean, I used to, I'm 32 now. Something happened to me when I turned 30 where I just could not drink (laughs) the way I used to. I, on my 30th birthday, someone sent me two shots of tequila and I'm, pretty competitive so he's like i bet you can't drink those faster than me and i was just like boom like, it's I just, like the oldest I, I, <laughs> dude trick in the book <laughs> i didn't know that <laughs> yeah, yeah. no it's not that i do that but That's it's like so funny. you know i i can recognize it i'm like oh my god i i bet you can't take these two roofies faster <laughs> yeah, than me yeah, yeah. let's have a roofie eating competition yeah. i just was like yeah. and i was like on an empty stomach and literally i woke up in my bed the next morning and i had like 30 missed calls and texts and people were like did you go home with john mayor and i was like oh my god and you're like i uh, hope so i know i'm kidding <laughs> did anyone like, get photos i don't even remember seeing john yeah, mayor i was just like okay i <laughs> i can never drink tequila again certainly um but so i'm just like honoring the fact that okay i just i can't yeah. be as productive and prolific when i drink so i don't drink when i'm writing i wake up um i uh have like 30 minutes online you know, I, I I really try to keep it to like four basic sites. What are those? What are those? Um, sites? I always do Huffington Post. I do Salon. I do Slate. Ashley One. Madison. Ashley. <laughs> <laughs> AshleyMadison.com. Laura Ashley, Ashley Madison, um, and then One Kings Lane, which is like sure. my sort of 
you know, um, thing and dig sometimes. Uh, and it kind of depends what I'm working on. Cause it's mm-hmm. also, if I'm writing right now, I'm writing a pilot for HBO that's sort of about gender and, and it's got a lot of science in it. So I'll go to psychology today. Jezebel, the frisky, which are kind of, um, the frisky, the frisky is like what a, it's like a website for girls that's got a lot of like studies and this many women admit to having orgasms and right. masturbation is good for your health. Sort of like right. edgy. It's like Cosmo with some citations. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> smart Cosmo. <laughs> got it. <laughs> that's really funny. It's smart Cosmo. And, uh, so if there's anything that's relevant or, you know, and, uh, I'll look at Twitter, you know, I, I sort of follow all the major news things on Twitter, but mm-hmm. I, once I get into that, it activates a part of my brain that's a little too self-conscious and mm-hmm. what's everybody else doing. Right. So I, I try to not do that because I do know that all of this is an addiction and I have to sort of keep it under control. Yeah. I do coffee. I do vitamins. How do you do your coffee? I do my coffee um, in a Keurig. Yeah. I do Keurig. Keurig. That's a hard one. Keurig. Whatever I know. I is. couldn't say... uh this is what was it? Desensitization. That's a lot of syllables. <laughs> That's bad. I need. But you to did do, nail up secret. I need. I'm gonna do. I did. <laughs> I hit that one out of the park. Um, I do uh, with almond milk and this something all natural sugar. I had this woman come in and take all the carcinogens out of my house. So I'm like Good making idea. my own almond milk, like an Amish slave these days. <laughs> it's really Those Amish slaves make amazing coffee. <laughs> <laughs> um so as but long I, as they tie those beards back that's right that's right, uh, that's right and i try not to do too much coffee and then i do an, a smoothie which you've heard about but it's it's like kind of like everything i need for the day so i'm not worrying later about what do i should eat for lunch have now, i had what enough? time are you waking up generally um usually about depending on how late i'm doing shows right now i'm touring to get ready for my special so on the weekends when I am on the road, I'll wake up more like 10 or 11. Yep. But when I'm writing, I try to, I try to wake up early. And and when I was writing um, a script last year, I would wake up at like 5 a.m. and try to work wow. from like 5 to 9 and go back to sleep. Because yep. isn't that when our brain is the most kind of... For a lot of people, yeah, it depends. I mean, the of the writers I know who are really prolific uh, and put out good work, it seems like they all... There are a couple of exceptions, and I hate them because I can't do what they do, which is like, they're like, oh, yeah, from 1 to 2 p.m., I'll kick out no, an article. No, can't do it. No. Uh, these writers, uh, the more common case, I they write when other people are asleep, yep, whether smart. that means yep. staying up really, yep. really late. Which I can't do. Or waking up really, really early. Yeah. And I was always the night owl version. Yeah. But but yeah, it's great to wake up at 5 a.m. because you're not getting emails. You're not on right, the right, mass right. emails and whatever, you know? Yep. So I would do that and then go back to sleep. Got it. Um, which was super helpful because my circadian rhythms are. How long would you sleep for? Um, I my nap game is pretty strong. I believe <laughs> very strongly in naps. Okay, so wait, let's so let's revisit that time period then. Okay, so you wake up at five. Five. You, you do a four hour yeah writing session. Blitz. 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 You go back to bed. Mm-hmm. When do you wake up? I'll go back to bed at like noon or one. A lot of times I'll sleep for like two hours. And then take another nap from like seven to eight because okay. then I'll go to stand up at night. Ah, so what right. I usually try to do is break my day into two days, like two mini days, because I, I, I mean, I don't know how com- I think a lot of comedians sleep really late, but if I'm going to wake up at eight and then I have to perform at 10, right. by the time it's 10 o'clock, everyone else is winding down. And then all of a sudden I have to be like hilarious and charming. So I'll usually take a nap at like six to seven so that I wake up and like I'll have a little bit of coffee and then like. 
go do stand up. Game on. Yeah, game on. It's very Arg- very Argentinian. That's what they do in Is Argentina. It's kind of for the for the tango. So I, I lived in Argentina for nine months, and the in the tango world, nothing really gets started until eleven o'clock at night or or midnight. I don't know how people do that, and so people would yeah. do exactly what you're describing. Yeah, that's uh, crazy. Uh, the okay, got it. So then. Uh, during that four hour blitz, you wake up, are you still doing the 30 minutes of internet in the beginning? I guess I don't. Yeah, I'll do it in the morning. Okay. To me, that's always my, I, because I know how many interests we all have and how many priorities we have. So it's, we want to know what the news is. We Mm want to put nutrients in our body. We want to connect with our parents or loved ones or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So I'll try to get that all done as early as possible. So it's not looming over me all day. Got so it's it. like, if I've just checked all the news, okay, I know everything checkbox. that I checkbox. I have my smoothie with all my nutrients in it. Checkbox. Can you now, I know during the sound, this, the sound check, which was spectacular, <laughs> but <laughs> I made it. a solemn promise <laughs> not to use that. So could you elaborate on the smoothie? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so I, um, uh, this woman, uh, her name is Lori Cohen Peters. Uh, she's pretty amazing. And she comes to your house and tells you everything in your house that's killing you. Uh, basically your cleaners, your food. I mean, I thought I was like going to, um, this super all natural grocery store and she literally, I mean, I had almond milk and hummus and raw enamami. I mean, I think I'm nailing it. Right. And literally I'm like, this one's going to come over and I'm going to get a refund. She opens and she looks at me like, like horrified and she was like you're eating this and i was like what almond milk she's like it's full of lecithin and blah 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 so because i was also having some trouble with um at my energy level Mm. and my liver was a little inflamed and i wasn't converting folic acid properly there was like a couple Mm. things that were up and uh so she put this smoothie together for me that it's uh uh kale of course vegetable of the hour yeah. <laughs> the zeitgeisty yeah, yeah, vegetable yeah. <laughs> um i was in savannah like two weeks ago and someone was like are you eating kale and i was like kale's officially made it it's yeah, in savannah yeah. <laughs> people know about kale it's fish it's it's officially in the zeitgeist it's kale carrots kiwi raspberries avocado olive oil flax oil some kind of green powder and then we put all my sort of pills in there <laughs> 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 which is like uh, adrenal support, cod liver oil. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, is this good? Uh, no mercury. Uh, vitamin K, uh, alpha-lipoic. Alpha-lipoic acid. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, desensitization. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, I think, oh, CoQ10. And I think that is maybe... That's plenty. Like 2% of the pill. That's 2% of it. (laughs) (laughs) And then we actually make the shake. And then we add (laughs) the ingredients. Right. That's step one. (laughs) Uh, Got it. And um, okay, that all done. I feel released of like, okay, I can kind of eat whatever I want all day and I've gotten everything I needed because I could be so – I don't know if this is the case for you. If I need something to be done, I can't stop thinking about it until it's been accomplished. So I just have to do it right away. I can't be like, oh, I'll eat a healthy dinner because then I'll just like – Right. Worry about obsess it. on it, have it yeah. on, on loop. Yeah, so I, I know my limitations, and I try to just. And so, so let's take. Uh, if you think, well, let me ask a couple of kind of rapid fire questions, uh, just for people who want to get more familiar with your stuff. So, if if you could recommend that someone listen listen or watch mm-hmm. five minutes of your material oh, yeah. of your stuff, five to ten, let's just say, what would you point them to? 
I would first tell you to put your kids away. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would point them to my last stand-up special, uh, as you can see on my arm. It's called I Love You. Mm-hmm. It's part of the advertising campaign. Right. <laughs> White tattoo. <laughs> um, and I would, I would just do the first five minutes of my last special. Okay. The first or the last. First five minutes or the last five minutes. Okay. So if we, if we take a look then at the first five minutes, mm-hmm. and I don't want to give away any secret sauce necessarily or the punchline, literally, I guess, but, <laughs> uh, if, if we look at that, where did it start? Like what was the, the kind of development process of that one first of the five minutes? Yeah. Or of like one of the bits, if that's the right word. Yes. I don't know. Uh, in those five minutes, like where did it, where did it come from? Or, or, uh, I'd love to just kind of track the sure. the growth and development it of that. It came idea. from pain. Mm-hmm. It came. My stand up is um, always comes from uh, sublimating or alchemizing really painful situations into figuring out how to make it funny. Okay. Uh, and so I went. I was in a sort of really codependent, unhealthy relationship. I'm going to ask an embarrassing question. No. What does codependent mean? Codependent. There's I've, actually, that's I've a, heard it used a lot and I've never been 100% clear. That's actually a great uh, question because most people use it wrong. Uh-huh. Most people think codependence means spending a lot of time with people or I can't be alone or whatever, which could be an element of it. Codependence is essentially that you look to other people to decide how you're feeling. Uh, so I go up, oh, Tim's in a bad mood. Uh, okay. Now I'm in a bad mood. It's like essentially you're a reactive person and you put other people's needs before your own. I got it. All right. It's basically Thank you. That. So, you know, I have a doctor's appointment. Tim asked me to drive him to the airport. I'm going to drive you to the airport right. and I'm going to forego my doctor's appointment. Got it. Your comfort comes first, essentially. Got and it. it usually codependence breeds resentment. Right. So I'm going to do this for you. And then two weeks later, you're five minutes late. And I'm like, well, I drove you to the airport. And you're right. like, well, I didn't want you to. You offered. And right. You martyr yourself, essentially. Got it. Um, which is, it's pretty nefarious because you're uh, masquerading as really kind and nice. So right. everyone, when I was in the height of my, my codependent glory days, uh, I was like the nice person who would help you move and I'd pay for the bill. And I was like the, the nicest person, yet people pleasing is form of assholery. So then I was like annoyed at everybody for right. not taking better care of me right. and keeping score. Got of all it. The, you know, it's not a truly nice thing if you're expecting something in return. Sure. You know, so yep. it's just a way to victimize yourself. Right. And a way to, um, like, I don't know if you've ever dated someone like this or had an employee like this or someone that does nice things for you and then gets mad at you for not sure. receiving the gifts the way they wanted you to have them. Yes. Yes. Which right. is a way for your, like, you just started this fight yeah, yeah. and made me a jerk. Don't do me a favor I didn't ask for and then lord yes. it over me. I just made you a four course meal. It's like, I didn't ex- ask you to do any of those things. Right. Why are you, you know, and then you get mad when they don't appreciate it the way you yeah. want them to. Yeah. So codependence breeds resentment. So, but it's a tricky thing to catch and recover from because again, your story is I'm just being nice. Right. Um, so I was kind of in a, in a relationship like that, uh, with someone that sort of recreated my childhood circumstances. So it just felt familiar. And, um, uh, I, yeah. So that's the answer to that. But I can't remember the material, the bit in the five minutes. And so so you pull it from your painful experience. So I had all this rage after I got out of it, not rage, but just sort of like I was disrespected in a relationship. And I just took like, you know, for I, 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 the reason I think I'm proud of that first five minutes is because that was my sort of more, I think getting your heart broken is really important. If you're an artist, I encourage you to get your heart broken, get hurt, fall on your face, make mistakes, um, 
thaw the ice, break through the defenses and get vulnerable. Cause I think that there's a difference between getting your heart broken and getting your heart broken open. And when it gets broken open, you know, you can really, that's where the meat is. That's I where, like that. that's where you write great characters. That's how you get vulnerable. And it's important because I think comedians, we pride ourselves on how tough we are. Yeah. But you know, we're porcupines under there. It's all marshmallow. Just get to the marshmallow because that's where the gold <laughs> is. I promise if you just tell the truth and get your heart broken as a comedian, you will have a house. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a cool way to put <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah. So I think maybe in a lot of professions, being tough is what's valued in comedy being weak. It's like power right. through vulnerability. The, um, uh, the speech that brings to mind for me is a commencement speech by a writer I really admire named Neil, Neil Gaiman. Gaiman. Love him. Yeah, yeah, make good art, right? Mm-hmm. Cat exploded, make good I art. This book. happened, make good art. And yes. uh, I think I'm quoting him correctly. This is paraphrased, of course, but I think I know knew that you liked him because on one of your podcasts you brought him up before. So. I'm a big fan. Yeah, I'm a bit of a fan. Yeah, boy. I like him. Uh, yeah, a bit of a fan is like understatement of the podcast. Yeah. Uh, but he, um, amazing guy too. I met him for the first time uh, in SF very briefly and i'd heard his audiobooks so it was extremely surreal to mm-hmm. hear him sound so erudite and extremely british in person and i was yeah. like am i listening to an audiobook right now <laughs> this is amazing and uh, but the line was something along the lines i'm saying lines a lot of <laughs> you're in a line uh, barrel. I'm, I'm on the i'm on the line <laughs> on, on, the, on the line theme but he said uh, when you start to feel extremely uncomfortable like you're walking down the street naked then maybe you're starting to get it right. Love it. Love it. Oh, that's so great. That's my and, favorite. And stuff. when I put out, I've experienced that in my own writing where I'll spend a disgusting amount of time on a given uh, blog post, let's say, that I yeah. think is going to kill it. Yeah. And it just flops yeah. or it's just crickets. And then when I have that extreme discomfort mm-hmm. and I'm, I hesitate yeah. drafting it and I hesitate publishing it, those are almost always the pieces that do the best. So even outside of comedy yeah. in writing, I find that to be true. Uh, okay. So you have, so you take this pain. Yeah. Did you, did you take notes on the pain as you were experiencing it or did you re- recall it in one of your writing sessions I remember, and put down the bones? I remember actually, and this might be cheating a little bit and, or not cheating, but um, I actually remember sharing in an Al-Anon meeting something that was really hurt my feelings. And I was like, and then he did this and then he did this and people started laughing. (laughs) And I was like, is this like, and I realized, (laughs) oh my God, this is funny because it's happened to other people Ah. and people are relating and it's resonating. And when you tell the truth about your embarrassing moments and show your shadow, (laughs) A catharsis happens, which is what laughter is, which yeah. is people go, me too, you know? Yeah. So it was basically like, I was like, the whole premise of that first five minutes was, what does love mean? Because I feel like my whole life, love has been a very, I think just in our culture in general, love is a very confusing, vague, manipulative word, right? And, um, you know, this is why I love working with animals so much is that you only, um, communicate through behavior not through words because words can be so confusing words mean something different to everybody you know and they have no thumbs so they can't get they they can't open your doors (laughs) steal your stuff (laughs) that's true that's true they can't read your blog (laughs) yeah yeah, yeah, this wasn't as good as the last one they just love they're your biggest fan um and uh and so love I, i i kept being in these 
difficult relationships where it was always like, but I love you, but I love you. And then it was like, it would just undermine all of the bad behavior. And I feel like I was, you know, the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. I was like, I keep, I kept justifying being in bad relationships because of this vague amorphous thing called love, which I was like, so love means you hate. I love you means I hate you, basically. Like, I just was, (laughs) so I was like, we need to all agree on a universal definition. I think that was my sort of solution. I was like, we should, because I see so many people getting hurt and disappointed because their definitions are different. And then I sort of laid out what I think my definition of love is, and it should be very simple. I'm not going to like be hacky and do the bit, but it was like, I, I was like, my definition of love is being willing to die for someone that you yourself want to kill. <laughs> that, in my experience, is kind of the deal. And uh, and if you love me, don't do these 10 things that I had yeah. been through. Like, if I'm in the shower with you, don't pee. <laughs> it was like stuff like that. Like, is that so much to ask? Like, right. things like that. Like, and yeah. I just listed all of my grievances. <laughs> and I was like, it's so great to be able to... Um, you know, that is what is great about comedy is every time something bad happens, yeah. I'm now conditioned to go like, oh, this is gonna be a great joke. Yeah. So every thing that sucks ends up being a gift somehow. Like, um, when I first had money, like I grew up without any money and I, uh, got a car like seven years ago, maybe it was, I got my first car that I paid for myself. It was a Lexus hybrid. And the first day I got it, I filled it up with diesel fuel. <laughs> And so I assume, it, well, yeah, yeah, not the right thing to do. Just destroyed it. I mean, yeah. it cost like six grand or so. It was awful. And I got this great <laughs> joke out of it, though. I got like a seven minute bit that, you know, probably paid for all the damage, you yeah. know. That, so now I'm in this place where when something bad happens, I'm like, oh, good, I can use that. Material. You know? This yeah, is good material. material. Exactly. So that is <laughs> organic. The, yeah, is the upside of, of being a comedian. Uh, and um, oh, what was I going to I was going to dig a little bit further into that. Uh, but maybe I can take a step back. I was looking on uh, Wikipedia, which, as we all know, no, is always always one hundred percent factual. Right, factual. Right. But it said genres: observational comedy, blue comedy, insult comedy. Oh, and I wasn't sure what blue comedy was. Quite frankly, the other ones seemed a little more straightforward. What is blue comedy? Blue comedy. Um, I mean, I take. Uh, offense to that it's kind of i it's not i'm not saying it's true i don't even know it is to me because i don't tell you blue comedy is thought of as like dirty com edgy comedy Uh, you know and dirty edgy like dirty dan carlin uh george carlin george carlin dan carlin's a a podcaster i idolize oh (laughs) hardcore (laughs) history george carlin george carlin but it's tricky because it's like what is again what is the definition of love what is the definition of dirty so for me it's like if you're talking about and doing airplane jokes but using curse words is that dirty or is talking about sex without curse words dirty uh, kind of thing. You know what right. I mean? What's dirty to you? And in our sort of puritanical society where sex is still this really taboo, uncomfortable yeah, thing, right. it's so interesting to me because it's like I do talk about – I don't talk about sex. Like it's I just talk about my personal experiences and my confusion because to me sex is about power dynamics and it's about sure. masculinity and femininity and, um, and just so many primal – things and it it fascinates me because i think we think we have so much more choice than we actually do in a lot of this stuff and it causes the most of us the most amount of pain of any other thing in our lives i mean you know being cheated on or being in love and getting heartbroken i mean this is like i mean every movie plot every where every all the money is spent on valentine's is all about this so to me it's like how can anything be more relevant so the fact that i talk about sex and someone calls it blue i'm like 
This is all anybody cares about. Why is this why, still taboo? Why blue? Blue. Oh, good question. Like in terms of why is blue? Because blue why is usually the symbol more for sad. sadness. Oh, yeah. Blue comedy. That's a good. I don't know. I will look that up. Uh, that's an interesting ideological yeah. ideological conundrum. Etiology? Uh, well, sure. The 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 words words. Uh, the study of morphological. Oh, there we go. Now you're pushing it. No, no. no. I said obsequious. <laughs> Let's not forget that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I was a station studies major, so I can pull out the linguistics <laughs> words every once in a while. Uh, morphological. I haven't probably ever used that in spoken language before. Uh, so okay, that's blue. That's blue. Uh. <laughs> Let's talk about insult comedy. So, uh, you've done roasts before, participated in roasts. Mm-hmm. Which, which roasts, what are some roasts that you've participated I in? I did Joan Rivers. I did David Hasselhoff. I did, uh, Donald Trump. And now roasts are, I mean, just if you- those seem like treasure troves of material. Well, it's interesting because whenever someone thinks that, that, is always a trap because because, because it's too obvious. Yes, it's too obvious. So D- Donald Trump, everyone's going to do hair jokes. The first comic's going to do all the hair jokes. So by the time I go up six, I have to have ah, some other angle that right. nobody's even. You have to think of like the butterfly effect. Yes, exactly. So, so we I, start with the hair, but I went we more up? for the you know Russian mail order bride wife. I have to go to like a totally different angle, or you know, you're went boy. straight for the yeah, kick exactly. to the nuts. So right. I get, <laughs> totally, I've got to go to this like weird <laughs> angle, and you know, Joan Rivers, everyone's going to go after the same thing, and and. Um, and David Hasselhoff was actually kind of tricky because he's just more of a general, he's just silly, you know, like what, like what, you know, so the angle on him was tricky to get, but then there's a ton of other people on the dais too. I did that in the, in early. So I was a writer on the roasts before I was a performer on the roasts. And, um, you know, I think it's tricky because I guess I get defensive around that because maybe I have some shame because I do feel like they've gotten really mean. Yeah. And the way that roasts uh, originated was actually the Friars Club roast, which is a bunch of comedians roasting other comedians. Friars Club. Friars Club. Yeah, in New York. And it was all comedians roasting other comedians. It wasn't comedians roasting... Non-comedians. No, comedians are very different than... Yeah. Normal people. Their their brain chemistry is different. Their uh, amygdala is yeah. different. Their I mean, it's they, you, I have this theory that comedians should not be let out in public. <laughs> they're dangerous. <laughs> they're like armed and dangerous. Armed and da- they're just not safe. I mean, it took me a silver tongue. It, it just maladjusted. <laughs> it just took me a long time to realize you can't talk to regular well-adjusted people the same way you talk to comedians because we're like hey asshole what's up and we just make fun of each other and that's sort of it's not healthy but that's sort of how we show love to each other is that we rip each other and make fun of each other and uh you know and it's 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 funny because actually you'll know this is that you know brian callen which is Mm -hmm. how i know you which you met him on what was it thruple tinder (laughs) oh uh yes we well we first connected it was it was uh it was very funny first we met on (laughs) grinder Uh, and uh, there, uh, most of his photos did not involve his face. Um, and <laughs> then, uh, then we met again on Thrinder, which is Tinder for threesomes. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> finally we're like, you know, not that attracted to each other, but we share a lot in common. Let's just, let's go read some hot books and drink some bros. coffee and be friends. Uh, <laughs> and then, I actually don't know. I don't recall how I first met Brian. I, yeah. I this is a common issue for he me. He just sort of creeps into your life in a, in a very insidious <laughs> it's like way. Mildew. Yeah. He's like mildew or like an STD. He shows up. You don't know why. And you just spend the rest of your life trying to get rid of him. Um, so I remember. Him, you know, he and, uh, 
Brendan have a podcast, yeah. which I think you've done. Fighter and the Kid, great right. show. And I remember going on the podcast and Callan and I, I was just, we were trashing each other. I mean, it was like bad. I yeah. mean, and then Brendan, who's not a comedian, and I'm trashing he's him. He's just like, what the and fuck I know, are you guys And I know, and he's doing? like, are you guys fighting? I mean, it like, it does look yeah. awful. And then... <laughs> I'm sort of treating Brendan the same way. And Brendan was like so insulted and, and upset. And, and I just, I was like, oh my God, like, sorry, it's a completely different language. So yeah. the roasts, again, initiated with comedians roasting comedians. And then when it got on Comedy Central, all of a sudden they start bringing in like Pamela Anderson and, you know, just these perfectly nice people with feelings who aren't yeah. numb to the core and who yeah. aren't sociopaths. Right. And so when you start mixing that, that's when it started getting, you start seeing people getting their feelings hurt and, you know, and also again, comedians actually are more sensitive than anyone. Yeah. So when you start having people who aren't comedians making fun of us, it's like, oh no, you haven't earned the right yeah, to yeah. call you, me a whore. You don't have your stripes. Yeah. He, yeah. Jeff Frost can call me a whore. You can't call me a yeah, whore. Yeah. It's like all of a sudden we have these boundaries. Well, that's, well, that's, it's funny you mentioned that because it's like, I am okay. There was this piece in the New York Times, which was a, uh, sort of a, it, I, it's, it wasn't a takedown piece because it was too funny. It was a, like a parody piece. Uh -huh. Uh, related to the four hour body. And the guy was like, it's like the, the New England, uh, what would he say? It was like the, uh, New England Journal of Health or something like that it was hijacked by the Sky Mall catalog or whatever. And it was like actually yeah. very funny stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't bother me at all. Yeah. But then there's someone who tries to be funny, but is not a good writer mm -hmm. who slams me. And I'm like, no, no, no. If you're gonna you do it, it. You yeah, if you're it. gonna do it, do it well. I always say, uh, in order for a roast joke to work, it has to be funnier than it is mean. Uh, so if it's not funnier than it is mean, it's always going to bomb. So yep. it's like you're walking this tightrope of like, if you're going to make an AIDS joke, yeah. that better be an A plus joke. If you make right. a C AIDS joke, you get a boo. If you right. make an A plus, which is sort of what I like, excuse me, I'm getting attacked by bugs. Um, something that I loved about the roast is sort of the math of it. Cause those jokes are all math jokes. You know what, what I do you think? mean by that? Um, adding and subtracting a word can completely change the response. They're basically tight cat skills jokes. For example, one of my favorite jokes, um, cause I won't say my own jokes cause that would be narcissistic <laughs> and give me shame. So I'll say one of my favorite, uh, roast comedians, Jeff, uh, the late Greg Giraldo, he had a joke for iced tea once. He said, iced tea, you're so old. You used your first residual check to buy your freedom, <laughs> which is just a brilliant joke. Um, but it's all math, you right. know, it's just set up, turn, you know, those were the kind of jokes that, uh, you know, we do with the roasts where it's like if you did it, any other word combination would not be as funny. Yeah. You know, you change one word. Um, I remember, uh, some more, I wrote this joke that was, it's a horrible, really dark joke, but, um, I said, uh, it was a flavor flavor roast. I was a writer on that. And it was, the joke was Flav. You look like what Magic Johnson should look like right now. Oh, my God. <laughs> so <laughs> I wrote that joke and she delivered it in a way that it bombed. Oh. She was like, You look like how Magic Johnson should be looking right now. And it just too many words. Bombed. Like three extra words. Bombed. Yeah. It's not sharp. It's so a dull I, knife. Yes. I love the economy of words. You can take two words out. Yeah. It's a difference between laughing and a pause break. Yeah. So that kind of stuff is. Sort I of feel like. Twitter is good training for that. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I've, I've been astonished good when point. I've tried to draft something and I'm like, God damn it. You know, yeah. negative 23 yeah. red. And I'm like, yeah. Oh, how do I get, but that I want to keep it. I want to keep it. And then I trim it down and I'm like, it's so much better. Yeah. Concision is so key. much better. Yep. hundred uh, percent. So I love that is sort of something I loved about the roast. Ultimately, um, you know, I think that roasts, are, I think it's important to know when to, to stop doing something. Yeah. You know, one of my favorite Steve Jobs, 
things is uh, what I don't make is just as important as what I do make. Sure. Right. Like what you say no to is just as has just as big of an impact on your career. So I did yeah. three of them and it felt like, you know, that was I was getting known as the roast girl and right. I was getting known as this insult, mean insult comic. And I'm not like that at all. I'm like yeah. this super fragile sort of um scared person and i would have i'd be in an airport and someone would be like hey cunt and i'd be like whoa it's two o'clock whoa. on a tuesday yeah like people just thought they could talk to me like that yeah and it would really freak me out that's crazy people would yeah. say the words like that to me on the street it's so wild i mean it's it's very unusual dynamic obviously when you're public facing mm-hmm. and people feel like they know you intimately yeah and in some cases they they might yeah. right if they've read all your stuff watched all yeah. your stuff they actually probably know quite a lot about you uh, but you can have that type of experience, right? Like yeah. I'll have guys come up to me in the, like, I'll be taking a piss at a urinal and some guy will, like come up and like give me a slap on the back and start like kind of breathing into my ear, talking to me as if he's like my buddy from high school. Speaking and of I'm grinder, like, yeah. I have never, yeah, speaking of grinder, <laughs> I did, granted, I did respond to that for a good time call <laughs> on the inside of the bathroom stuff. I was in an airport bathroom. I, you know, well, I mean, which surprised me, especially in the airport. I'm thinking security, the guy must work here. Right, right. Isn't that a violation of some kind of TSA regulation? But, uh, it is very <laughs> interesting because I think, uh, you know, when it's so rewarding to be able to share the intimate details of your life with people and help people laugh at it, or in your yeah. case, help them, you know, with their confidence or their business or their goals or whatever. Help but people laugh at me. Exactly. People laugh at you. <laughs> uh, and then to sort of compromise this level of privacy, it's, it's, it's usually okay for me, but I just don't have very thick skin. And I, I have this theory that the third thing someone says, a stranger says to you is always an insult. Hey, <laughs> such a big fan. Love your work. You're so much bigger in person. Because the third one is always their honest re-answer. The first two is just their adulation. Yeah, yeah. So I always try to just get out after yeah. the second compliment. That's really that's really funny. Yeah. That's very funny. I uh, was listening to you. Uh, I'm an avid consumer of, of stand-up. Deathly afraid of ever doing it. That's, a, that's something we can maybe talk about. But... Uh, I think it was, I was either Dimitri Martin or Mitch Hedberg. Love. Uh, I think. Love. When they were saying, you know, when I, when I take photos, I like to count to five because that's when people get real. <laughs> <laughs> like one, here it's coming. That's Two's so almost great. here. Three, <laughs> smile. Four, what? Five? What the fuck? And then they take the photo. That's uh, great. <laughs> so that funny. Sounds like Dimitri. Oh my God. Dimitri's yeah, hilarious. He is great. He has a lot of great photo jokes. He was, he's like, I love, uh, camera phones because you can reminisce immediately yeah. we were well, so young it, he has he has a lot of good wordplay jokes yes. too so it's Very like clever delightful know, yeah, playful like, jokes yeah you know, like the silent the silent g yeah we use that to screw up foreigners like in foreigner <laughs> i'm right there you know <laughs> He's, so it's clever so, it's such a um you know there's a lot of different kinds of comedy i had a sort of argument about this with someone recently it was like i don't understand why comedy's so negative you know and it was like there's a lots of different kinds of comedies, just like there's lots of different kind of music and art and whatever. Um, but, you know, Dimitri and, and, um, Zach Galifianakis and, uh, uh, Mitch Hedberg and Stephen Wright are in this sort of echelon of sort of this playful tickling sort yeah. of, I mean, like Dimitri, one of my favorite jokes of his is he's like, you know, it's like people always want to show me photos of their kids and then I show them photos of their kids and they think I'm weird. <laughs> I mean, it's just little stuff like that. That's sort of this fantastical 
surreal well, comedy. There's such an economy to it. I mean, yes. which I really like. Yes. Also, it's like precise haiku comedy. Yes. It's very and very it's precise. repeatable. There's yeah. something democratic about it because yeah. you can you can't rehearse say one of my bits to someone that's yeah. long and convoluted and it requires too much. It requires too much narrative practice it's physical yeah. you know there's also a guy named dan mintz who tells the kind of jokes that you can easily how do you say uh, spell dan mintz m-i-n-t-z he okay. wrote for uh louis ck's show on hbo uh he's doing something now but um he has a great joke he goes uh it's a little bit you know blue but he goes um <laughs> he goes you know it'd be really confusing if someone was performing an abortion and someone ran in and yelled abort abort <laughs> <laughs> oh god that is blue it's very blue but it's obviously a joke you yeah. know but it's just one of those just yeah. you hear it once and you can repeat you can it at parties it. forever yeah. you know it's like the one um not not to make this the uh <laughs> dimitri martin show but yeah. uh the uh the, the one, one uh i think this is all on the same album too and i'm blanking on the name of the album but uh, he says he says like you know it's along the lines of you know like <clears throat> what is it what does a dalmatian think when he sees a cow, just be like, <laughs> "Am I high right now?" You know, and then the cow's like, "He looks amazing." <laughs> yeah, my tits on the ground over here, you know, like it's uh, just like a part of your brain that's never activated, like yeah. things where you're like, "I've never thought about that." Yeah. But I mean, think about it. People like us and anyone who's listening to this is probably an overthinker. But we've thought of everything, you yeah. know. We've overthought everything fifty times, yeah. and so when someone puts something a visual in your mind that you've literally never entertained, it's yeah. just so like. It's like being a kid again or something. Yeah, That's yeah, how yeah. I feel watching Dimitri. Uh, the, um, the roast, you know, I was thinking roasts, part of what makes them so different now, aside from the fact that you have non-comedians being like harpooned yeah. by 20 professionals, yes, yes, yes. is uh, that it's preserved. So instead of being in a club with an expiration date yes. that is the end of yes, the night, yes, good point. it's on YouTube, Comedy Central, forever. Good point. And uh, very different sort of persistence. Yeah. Well, also, I see the roasts as more of a sport. Yep. Like it's like watching boxing or football or something sure. where you're watching someone, you know, get schooled and someone comes back and fights him back. And, you know, it's I think that activates that very primal part of your brain of kick his ass. Yeah. You know, and I think I, you know, it started getting so nasty. And, and I think the roasts were better. They're better when you're the underdog. Mm -hmm. You know, and people like to see a sure. Rudy come out, you know, so I did my first roast and it was like, who's this girl? And then I, you know, came out of the gate and like knew what I was doing. And then when I started to sort of, it was like my, I had an acumen for it and people started to expect, all of a sudden when people expect you to be good. Nothing but downside. Then they think you, you suck. You're yeah. like, wait a minute. You thought I was great when you never heard of me. Now you've heard of me and now you want, you know, everyone wants to build you up so they can just tear you down. Yep. And then I felt like, okay, it's good to know when to go out. And um, I'm sure she'd be fine with me sharing this. But in the last, the Donald Trump roast, Lee Slimp and Ellie and I, we just cried after the roast. We were like, it was just too below the belt. It was like, yeah. you know, the go-to for me. And I, again, I've been in the writer's room of the roast. I know the math of it. I know that it's like, we're going to make fun of what you look like. I try to not make fun of things about people that they can't control as a general rule. Yeah. Because it just feels a little too mean. Um, with the exception of some jokes I wrote about Carrot Top, but come on. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but I regret those and, and I feel bad about them. Um, and that one was just a little below the belt. It was like people were calling me a slut. Like I was in a relationship at the time. It was just like, 
what are you doing? Like, this yeah. is going to cause an argument. Like, it was just, it's so salacious and incendiary that I felt like I, it was, I was so, it just hurt my feelings after a while. Yeah. And Lisa Lampanelli and I were both like, she had just lost all this weight and they used to make fun of how, you know, that she was overweight and she had lost weight and now they were making fun of skin. It was just like, oh, you can't win. It's whack-a-mole. Yeah. yeah. You know? So, uh, we were like, I think it's probably good to switch, take switch a break. sports. Yes. Switch sports. What, um, what would you do if you had, say, this is all hypothetical, obviously, eight weeks oh. to take someone who's never done stand up, but has spent a little bit of time on the stage? Yeah. Uh, let's call that person a friend of mine. <laughs> <laughs> I.e., just wondering for myself. Uh, eight weeks to get them ready to do five minutes on stage mm-hmm. at like an open mic. Right. Uh, what would you do? Uh, that's a great question. I would get them on stage the first night. The first night? Yep. First day of yep. eight weeks? Yep. Okay. And this entire, every night for all of the eight weeks, whether they have material or not. Because, yeah, the material is like 10% of it. Being comfortable on stage is all of it. You know, so I would say just get on stage. I, I say always say the first year and a half, two years of stand-up is just getting comfortable on stage. Your material doesn't matter. Like, it's like... um uh, boxing or whatever, you know. Um, but, uh, I would just say get on stage as much as possible. And, um, because your material in the, fir- the first couple of years is never gonna, no one's ever gonna see it. You know, it's just an excuse to get up there. Um, and I would also ascertain where they are in terms of their self-awareness and, per- and opinions. Mm-hmm. Like I would ask them 50 questions about where they're from, what makes them different. Cause I think a lot of people have this dysmorphic view about what's interesting about them. So I have this girlfriend, she's a comedian. Uh, and what was the thing? Oh, uh, she goes on stage and she was talking about like smoking pot and hooking up with guys. And, you know, she's sort of a younger comedian and it was just sort of everyone kind of does that. And then later I found out that she was a competitive diver in college. And I was like, why don't you talk about why that? Why haven't she's, you mined that? And she's yeah. like, oh no, I mean, it just seems boring. I'm like, no one else has that. Yeah. Like, I'll do it if you don't do it. I'm right. stealing it. You know, yeah. like a lot of people, pe- a lot of times people don't know what's interesting about them. So it takes a while because I think we all, you know, are so sick of ourselves in some yeah. ways or we inflate things and deflate other things and have denial about things. Um, So tap into what makes you you and why, what's interesting about you. Mm. Also help you figure out – it took me a long time to realize that as soon as you get on stage, you need to address what the audience is already thinking. I was just going to ask if you like – if you grab the gun and shoot yourself with it yep. before they can shoot yep. you. Yep, yep. So they, uh, I don't know who says this quote that, um, comedians become comedians so they can control why people laugh at them. Ah, just sort I of like interesting. That. So for me, I realized. I wish I could do that. I, I realized, need this skill. <laughs> I realized right away that people thought my last name being Cummings was funny. Yeah. And I didn't never understood. So I get on stage and I'd start talking and then I'd be like, oh, my last name is Cummings. And everyone start laughing like, she just put the needle in the balloon. Now we can move on. You know? I, well, I saw in your tweets. What was it? I wouldn't let any husband take my last name unless his first name was Dick. Yeah. I thought that was pretty good. Well, uh, because Zoe Saldana's husband took her last name. I think yeah. I was like thinking about it. Um, you know, because I always say like, people are like, do you want to get married? I'm like, I just want to change my last name. You don't have to marry me, but can I just take your last name? <laughs> we don't have to sign anything. Can my yeah. last name be Ferris, please? Um <laughs> But I have, I am grateful to that last name because I think at a very young age I had to learn to defend myself against ridicule. Yeah. So I, I, 
you know, had to get quick witted. Um, so how would you do an inventory for someone to figure out what those things are about them? Yeah. So you can like slay the pink elephants before they have a chance to like I would ask, stampede at you. Or right. Whatever. I would, um, you know, I'm very, a very direct person. Like I remember seeing a, you know, there's a lot of like, um, I don't know what, what is the social, the politically correct thing to say? Is it little people now? <laughs> is it, I, I don't know. It's not dwarves. Uh, I don't know I what the proper li- term is. Little I, people. I think it's little people. Everyone's on the same page. Okay. I think midget's not. The M word is the new N word. Yeah. yeah. M word definitely not. Not the M word. Not kosher. So I think it's like it's, calling, a, calling food oriental. I think it doesn't work. <laughs> I think it's little people. Yeah. So a friend of mine is a little person and he's a comedian. And, uh, he goes on stage and he's just like, so I was with this girl. Dylan. I was like, you, your first 10 minutes is talking about being a little person. Now, how do you prevent that from being much like going after Donald Trump for the hair? Right. Too obvious. Like right. they expect you to right. do that. Well, I think so, that first you have to, I mean, it's, you know, a lot of people say stand up is like sex, but like you have to be in tune, really malicious and very, really malicious and violent and, and, and like 10 minutes long. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, basically you have to 10 minutes. To ten- what am I sting? <laughs> Jeez. Secret to happiness is low expectations. Please. The four hour work week, the four <laughs> minute sex yeah, life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and, but you have to understand what their needs are. And be, and be able to fee- and ascertain, like I say, so much of comedy is just listening and, and it's a conversation. It seems like a monologue ostensibly, but it's actually a conversation. So you're constantly checking in with them. I always tell a lot of comedians who in the beginning aren't doing well. And I'm like, well, are you making eye contact with the people in the crowd? And they're always like, no. I'm like, oh, it's so intimate. Like you have to, I mean, I literally look all of them in the eyes all the time. It's you're constantly checking in, constantly checking in. The sound is one thing, but you also have to be checking in with them and knowing what they need from you you know and so for me the first couple of years i had to address the last name cummings in the beginning everyone was like cool we don't have to think about this anymore because other people are like, did, did they just say cummings is her last name Cummings? and right. then they're distracted so you yeah, just have yeah. to take it off the table are we uh, can we move on here yeah. okay my last name is cummings now let's get to some other stuff i've always uh <laughs> it's one of these things where you think it's going to get old. I'll, I'll tell you what it is. It's Jim Gaffigan's voice that he does to yeah. imitate the crowd. Oh, my God. Yeah. He's yeah. so pale. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's exactly it. You know. It's so empowering. That's freedom. Yeah. And you just the, the – yeah, I just thought it was such a – it's such a uh, such a clean, so, kind of elegant way the audience is in to monologue. just nail it. Yes. You know? Yeah. It's so great because it it just – it takes the elephant, like you said, out of the living yeah, room. Yeah. You know, another thing I did recently and, and just when I kind of thought, okay, enough people know me. I don't have to um, – so I – this is such a weird thing to say. Uh, I like get – like I mean I put a lot of – I take good care of my skin. I try at least. But <laughs> One my- of the crowd questions was how is your – how do you get your skin so glowing? So maybe, <laughs> so maybe you could explain. Maybe we should talk about that. Yeah. Um, but – but sometimes on stage, it I look really shiny. Yeah, like and I look all the time. Pe- no, that this is. But you're. I mean, I can't totally. But you look just like you can't see my face because you look like suns you really in your eyes. <laughs> you're just like an orb of light. Yeah. Um. But the same is with me. So I get really shiny, and then one time I was on stage, and I was like, "Do I look really shiny?" And everyone just burst out laughing because <laughs> it was like the elephant in the living room. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. why is she wet? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, is she just coming from a storm? And I was like, "Oh my god, you guys! I I'm not wearing any makeup, and I put like cream uh, like." oil on before i came on stage and i was like <gasps> like it was like now we can talk about now something. we can move on right now i can pay attention to what you're saying totally so yeah. it's like just sort of being able to have that kind of self-awareness which yeah. is it's hard because it's like you want self-awareness but you don't want self-absorption you right. want to be able to self-reflect but not be a narcissist you have to you know 
it's a it's a delicate balance. I think I would also who are who are some comedians who come to mind like right off the bat. I'm sh- I mean, there are a lot of really good comedians out there. We're just like offhand people who are good at walking that tightrope between self aware and, and self absorbed. Ooh, good, um, good, 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 great question. David Tell. Uh, yeah, David Tell. I couldn't have more love for David Tell. Yeah. Maybe. But it's I, I mean, I'm no kind of. I, I'm not. I feel like he's not. He doesn't penetrate. I mean, too much emotionally. Like I feel like Dave's not super vulnerable, at least on stage. Right. Off stage, he is. Um, but I would say, like, this is a great, great Bill Burr. Bill Burr. Bill Burr is a monster, <laughs> and he has this great ability to. I mean, he's you know on stage is somewhat obsessive and neurotic, and yeah. you know he's got podcasts and he you know. Um, gets really obsessed with things, but he's able to move on real quickly and not make it about him. It's, he's yeah. not myopic, you know. Yeah. He's uh, he's really good at responding to the crowd too. When he'll say a, something and, and everyone will go, <gasps> and he'll go, "Ooh, did I lose you? Yeah, you're like, with me, and now I feel like you're pulling back." I love back. when he does that because a, even in it, and it's such a you know maybe this will interest um, your fans that that he is one of my favorite comedians to watch because he will almost ordain a bombing so that he can because he's so successful now and i've seen him be on stage and just be killing and he's like that wasn't that funny you're laughing and because he wants oh, so he'll like premeditate he, he'll sort of like bombing like, meaning doing he'll be like uh, black people are different and people go oh, and he'll go like just let me get. so he'll throw out something so incendiary that he loses the crowd like on purpose just so, just can, so we can get him back that's amazing which is so cool because yeah, it's yeah. like what do you do when you're that uh, skilled is you have to keep it so yeah. you don't plateau you have to cre- keep creating it's like Roy Jones Jr. at his peak when he would just like drop his arms and do these like rooster fighting postures because exactly. he's like how do I make this interesting for myself 100% that's exactly it you know I doesn't Laird Hamilton's uh, uh, swim with a cement block he does exercise uh, in pools underwater with weights yeah Something like ridiculous where you're just like, oh, you're just bored yeah. at this point. Um, so I'll see him. He'll throw something out where he'll be like, you know, maybe the Holocaust was good for us. And yeah. then everyone's like, Ugh! and he's yeah. like, well, and then he gets them back, right, you know, right. and it's like he'll throw something out that you think is like the point of no return. You think like yeah. his career is over. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and then he gets him back, you know, yeah, so amazing. he's so cool. But he's not like, you know a narcissist he's not stuck in his own i think one of the biggest dangers you know as a comedian and i always worry about comedians who aren't friends with other comedians mm-hmm. because we're who we check each other and keep each other sort of sane is when comedians get too sequestered they or any big personality or someone with opinions who ends up being surrounded by staff and you know right. the jim carries of the world who get sequestered and all of a sudden they have no point of reference with reality and they kind of lose touch um, you know, so Bill is also great about he's in the trenches. He's the comedy star every night. He's talking to people. I mean, he's that's part of the reason I think his, you know, comedy so incisive. Who are some of the most uh, underrated comedians? Great question. Your- um, uh, great question. Sebastian Maniscalco. That's a hell of a name. It's a hell of a name. Uh, I'll send you his stuff. He's okay. um, he's so just how do you how do you spell his last name? M A N I S C A L C O Sebastian is, uh, I encourage any creative people to watch him because he is Sebastian Maniscalco. Maniscalco. He, uh, has some Italian, uh, blood and he's almost like a Brian Regan or like a more flamboyant Jerry Seinfeld. He's completely clean 
And I, this isn't, he's one of my favorite comedians. So I hope this doesn't come off pejorative, but he almost doesn't have jokes per se. Like if you were to transcribe his act, you wouldn't see jokes. Huh. He, it's so much in his performance and essentially his sort of thing is just disgust with humanity. Like he'll, and I'm not going <laughs> to embarrass myself by doing his act, but he'll just say like, uh, he'll be like, so, uh, anybody have the, uh, the Blu-ray? Like, and he'll just like <laughs> say facts about the blue way, right? His just his point of view is so specific and authentic. Yeah. And he's so genuinely angry that it's just hilarious. <laughs> so it's like, whatever you are, be that. If you're uh, annoying, be that. If you're a Republican, be that. Like, whatever like it is. Exaggerate what you already are. Is, is, as long as you're pretending to be someone you're not, the audience knows. Mm -hmm. So stand up is the ultimate exercise in accepting exactly who you are, as ugly as it is. As long as you tell the truth, they're in because they can tell – most people can tell when you're – which is why equine therapy has actually been really helpful for me. So talk to me more about the horses. What's what's going on? <laughs> with the, uh, well, so, so the Maniscalco, I'll definitely check out. Oh, yeah. Out. Sebastian Maniscalco, if, if any comedy nerds want to know more um, underrated people, uh, Sebastian Maniscalco is great. Um, Gerard Carmichael is great. I think he's probably um, – you're going to be hearing his name a lot more – uh, soon, Natasha Legero is very funny. Tig Notaro, I'm sure you guys all know her by now. Um, Chris D'Elia, I'm a fan. Uh, you probably already know him. Um, Brian Callen is actually overrated, I would say. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is where your retractable claws come out to eviscerate our friend in common. You're like, I know he's our friend. That's why I'm going to publicly humiliate him. <laughs> um, Neil Brennan uh, co-created The Chappelle Show with Dave Chappelle and has now started doing stand-up and is super um, incisive and funny. Uh commentary on race and gender that very few white people can get away with. Yes. That's hard to get away yeah. with. Yeah, very hard to get away with. Yeah. Uh, when, especially if you look like me, American history X, it's just like, <laughs> you're kind of asking for very unfavorable say, media. I was going to say American psycho, but well, you know, I'll take it. That must be because my skin is so luscious. Well, yeah. I mean, between your skin and my skin, I mean, we are, we need to turn the AC on. <laughs> Um, uh, I want to, so I will come back to the, uh, equine therapy, mm -hmm. but before we get there, I want to come back to the eight week training program. Oh, right, right, right. So for your friend, for, for my friend, Jim Saris, uh, <laughs> I, because for instance, and I think I'm probably not the only person with this insecurity, but I don't feel like a very funny person. That's I don't, fine. And, and I worry about, so for instance, there are certain circumstances, uh, that and literally like maybe three mm -hmm. where I'm like someday if I ever do stand up this could be funny but yeah. there are so few of them yeah. that I'm like wow I would be, I would just get I would be roadkill if yeah. I tried to go up for five minutes yeah and actually one of them earlier before we started recording you came out of the bathroom and you're like I just wanted to say <laughs> I did not create the mess in there uh, and so you know my thing has been like what do you do when mm -hmm. you like walk into the bathroom mm -hmm. and some like bashful person comes out and like scurries away and then yeah. you walk in you're like. This is a fucking disaster. <laughs> but like I'm in an airplane, somebody's behind me. Do I fucking clean it, it up or they're, do yeah, I leave it? Like I'm not going to have a conversation after. That's great. Right. But I only have like two or three of those over several decades of being on the planet. Right. How do you come up with. Here's the good if, news, yeah. which you'll love, is it's a muscle. 
Okay. So the more you work it, the stronger it gets. And then you'll be like me and you'll be haunted by everything you look at. All you can think of is how to make it a joke. You know, it starts being <laughs> more and more. And then you're up at night and like you're having sex with someone and you're like, oh, this would be a good joke. And you're like, oh, my God, can I just get a second of piece? Of yeah. Right. So it starts becoming like pretty relentless. But yeah, it's a muscle like any muscle. You know, the first couple of weeks you go to the gym, you're going to be a little sore. It's going to be hard. So what is the, if it's the muscle, if it's a muscle, what does the workout look like? What are potential exercises? Pot- uh, potential exercises is, um, you know, I remember like when I first started, I would like go around my house and be like, trash can. What's funny about a trash can? Like what's, I think the best way to do it is to, which is also helps to, um, what's the word? Uh, uh, when you, um, when you, I'm making weird, uh, Pet. Yeah. fondle, you're making, <laughs> you're making hand um, gestures. It looks like a cultivate. squid. Cultivate. cultivate. All right. <laughs> squid. <laughs> cultivate. When you cultivate your voice, figure out what interests you. So what I would first do is figure out what pisses you off. Mm. So people's limitations piss you off. The airport bathrooms piss you off. What pisses you off? Because I always say comedy is, for the most part, just an obsession with injustice. So most comedians have a very deep obsession with injustice. This isn't fair. And that's what we get on stage and talk. Unless you're Demetri Martin or Mitch Hedberg and you're sort of doing those sort of one-liner, sort of more playful, um, surreal jokes. Um, so what pisses you off? And, you know, Louis CK says, if you think about something more than three times a week, you have to write about it. Huh, what's haunting? Like yeah. What's haunting you? What's plaguing you? What's pissing you off? What do you spend most of your time thinking about anyway? So, um, you know, you can't stand your ex-boyfriend and your or ex-girlfriend and she's posting photos on Facebook and anything that pisses you off. Just because I was on Grindr, Grindr, Grindr once does not mean I have a boyfriend. <laughs> Let's be clear. There you go. Whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're not monogamous. That's what they say on the message boards. Right now. Um, I did some research. Uh, so it's actually, whereas I think most, and it's interesting. I remember you, I listened to one of your podcast episodes where you talked about negative thinking. Mm-hmm. There's positive thinking, but then the, uh, I'm going to botch it and plagiarize it horribly, but the power of negative thinking yep. to prevent ne- or something, it's almost like com- yeah, rehearsing, the worst case scenarios scenarios. to avoid them which is so cool to me so i always say that comedy is like a very delicate combination of positive thinking and incredibly negative thinking because you know you take the toilet thing and then you times it times a million and you go to its worst extreme what's the worst possible thing that could happen the catastrophe and then you make it a joke so i you know you mentioned louis ck i feel like he has gotten a lot better at infusing the positive uh, and mm-hmm. I, again, I'm not, this yeah. is just going yeah. from some of, uh, you know, some of his albums, which are still very funny, mm-hmm. but then getting on say a late night show and talking about like, everything's awesome and yeah. nobody's happy. Nobody's happy. Yeah. And the, the Wi-Fi on the airplane. And yeah. Stuff. Well, he's also, I mean, it's interesting because comedians are also human beings who grow and change. So, you know, a lot of people say about Howard Stern in the nineties, he was much angrier cause he was in a bad marriage and now he's in a great marriage and he's much happier, you know? So it's also, you know, I think you have to be very flexible in your stand up. So my first hour, I mean, I was 26 or something, so I wasn't even a person yet, but, uh, I was very like, I thought I was right about everything. And you know, in your twenties, you think, you know, everything. Right. And you know, I was like, loud and you know um and then my second special i had sort of life had kicked my ass a little bit and i was more humble and i was more like i don't know anything (laughs) and you know my next special is sort of i'm in even more so all of my specials are just it's a different person in each one you know so um you know louis ck i think now that he's gotten so successful 
and so exalted and lauded. It's like he's almost like, you know, just a different guy he was 10 years ago. He has less anger and he's able to come from a different perspective. So I also think it's important to not become a parody of yourself and to be able to be flexible. Yeah. Well, well, that's why when people ask me, for instance, uh, how would you edit your first book? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, if you went back to edit it. And this has come up because the 10th anniversary is coming up in about two years. And my answer is almost always I wouldn't edit much because I wrote it when I was 29 and I was in a different place and Mm -hmm. my perspectives have shifted a bit. But that book strikes a chord with a lot of people who are facing similar things. If I tried to rewrite it now, I don't have the kind of boots on the ground experience with those issues right now to mm-hmm. the extent that I did then and I would fuck it up. Right, right, right. Like right. I would rob it of that kind of immediate relevance. Um, That's interesting. What, uh, what would you do night of? So eight weeks pass. Yep. Okay. All right. Got a crowd. Mm-hmm. Not just your mom, not just your And this friends. is for the novice? This is for the novice you've taken from ground zero over eight weeks. Uh, Uh, But just so you know, over the eight weeks, I'm having them go up every night, whether they're bombing or not. Three spots a night, at least. Three spots. What does that mean? Three locations? Go on stage three times. So you're driving to three different things. Wow. Three different clubs. You're driving to a club, to a coffee house, to a bowling alley. When I first started for the first three years, I was doing bowling alleys, parking lots, uh, sushi restaurants. Just like walk up to people when they're trying to (laughs) unlock their car. (laughs) <laughs> just ambush. Hey, so what is the ambush deal <laughs> with these <laughs> Audis? Probably easier to get a, for you to get away with. The drunk guys like, oh, hey. I got shanked a couple times. Yeah. I got maced. Um, but no, in LA, I mean, and this was the time of MySpace. So yeah. and it was a time when there was all these, you know, shows at restaurants and bowling alleys and laundromats and people would just do these sort of shows everywhere. And, and I would say, can I get on? And you just had to constantly hustle and you're MySpacing all day to get spots and then yeah. driving around all day all night to do them, you know, sometimes three minutes, sometimes whatever. And uh, your first minute is going to make or break you for the most part if you're doing a short set. So doing a three-minute set is enough practice because that first minute is the key. Because as it. soon as you get – it's like a first impression of anything. Yeah. If you get on stage and you have power and you have status, yeah. it doesn't really matter after that. But if you go on stage apologetic and scared and – codependent yeah even the best material is gonna bomb you're done yeah, yeah. so i say that first minute is kind of what counts the most so um so uh doing three spots a night for eight weeks and recording your sets and listening to them uh not only to sort of get it into your memory but also to see what's really getting laughs sometimes we hear that we're bombing when we're actually getting laughs or we hear that laughs are smaller it's just important to listen to it back objectively yep. later when you're not sort of in the Sort of the deer in the headlights, right. yes, and um, and then the day of when I do an hour at night or when I do two hours a night when I'm doing um getting ready for my hour, I don't leave my hotel room and I don't talk all day, which is like I try not to talk on the phone, I try not to just deplete too much of my energy so that I'm super excited to get on stage and talk, so that I almost am like uh, what would the metaphor be like um a boiling pot? No, a balloon. No. I'm not sure what you're going for. Uh, <laughs> could be uh, could be either of those. Depends what comes afterwards. I just mean like when you're like chomping at the bit. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of deprive myself. It's almost like sure, starving sure. yourself before a meal. Yeah. You yeah. know, like I kind of like sit in my hotel room all day. I just do work. Yeah. I don't talk on the phone so that I'm super amped yeah. uh, to talk. So I would say like don't go out to dinner first. Don't go to lunch. Hang out. Watch TV. Be starving for attention. Yes. Exactly. 
deprive yourself. So by the time you get on stage, you're like super connected. Right. And uh, that's the only human connection you have all day. Yes. Craving intimacy, you know, instead of shut down and you've already filled your um, quota for connection all day. And when do you know that your material is ready for a three minute set? In other words, I, someone hasn't even done the what's funny about a garbage can. Yeah. Like we're talking. It's like, all right, Ferris, you're on an an hour. Yeah. Do I get up and do what the fuck do I talk about? Well, here's the thing. You're already, (laughs) you're already naturally funny. So you're, and you're smart. So you're going to be fine because you're going to, I mean, uh, 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 um, pending any, uh, Anxiety attacks. That's a big, that's or, a big or, asterisk. You, you're probably <laughs> pending. I think I'm only weird, funny when I'm not trying to weird, be funny. But here's the thing: I feel like you are a public speaker naturally. I mean, you're very good at this. Like, I mean, in front of a crowd, I mean, you're not going to have a problem, um, and you're going to react to the situation and be honest and self-deprecate and whatever. Like, um, but I think the only time you really get in trouble is when you attach yourself to a script and aren't flexible. Mm, right. So if you're like go off on a thing of, oh, you know who I am. You read my, if someone heckles you, I've read your book and now you read, and then you're like, so I was at the supermarket today. And right, you, right. if you can't respond in yeah. a conversational present way, yeah. it's like boxing. Yeah. Like if someone throws something new, you got to change your combination or whatever it is. If right. it's, you have to be relentlessly present and flexible and detached from your plan. So it's make a plan and then be ready to completely Adapt if needed. Adapt if needed. And with your, say, two hours a night. Yeah. Right. Uh, let's say you're getting, now you're getting ready. You do that. And, uh, well, two, I guess two very related questions. So you have the two hours a night in preparation for like recording the big special. Yes. Is that right? Yes. Then you have like the night of recording the big special. Yes. What do your pregame rituals look like? Love like, it. Like in the two hours before each of those? Yeah. What happens? So in the two hours, okay, so I am right now, um, touring to get ready for my HBO special, which I'm shooting in August. So every other weekend I'm on the road, uh, in clubs. I like to uh, perform in small spaces to, um, really ascertain if things are working and seeing people's faces. Like, cause you can, in a theater, you can get an applause break, but when you're up close and you see someone, you can't fake laughter. You can't fake involvement. I would imagine if you have 30 people, if you have 200 people. Yeah. 10 people clap really loudly. You yeah. think you're killing it. Yeah. Whereas if you have 30 people and yeah. one person claps, you're yes. like, oh shit. Yeah, exactly. But if you get a theater, you get sort of this false sense of bravado and false sense of success. Right. Whereas Got like it. when you're in a club, like people are drinking and they're eating and you know, it's like you're up against more. So I like to practice in clubs. And, uh, and so when the day actually comes, I will, I have two dogs. I will send them with the dog people so that they're not in the house. Um, for those two days because they'll wake me up early or they'll, you know, whatever. Um, even though they provide me with a lot of emotional support, um, just avoiding any curveballs. Um, and I'll wake up, I'll do my normal routine. I'll probably, I'll listen to the set a couple times, even though I know it inside and out, just more because I know I'm neurotic. So this is a previous performance? Uh, like the hour that I'm planning on doing. essentially like the script it's Mm -hmm. like going over a script i have it recorded and i'll go for a run probably got it and with it in my ear and the recording is you reading the script the recording is an actual performance i got it so i'll record all of my hours when i'm in the clubs on a voice memo on my iphone and then i'll label them this was good at this point this you know i did this new chunk of this i'll be really specific about which one is which the one that i feel should be the one that's recorded i will go for a run and listen to it in my iphone pod pad pad phone Phone. samsung (laughs) 
sidekick. Atari. And Just have five phones strapped yeah. to your head. <laughs> pager. Sky pager. And then um, I'll kind of lie in bed. I'll take a nap. I'll eat. Uh, and that's pretty much it. Got it. And then I have to get there at four for hair and makeup. And I'll meditate twice. 20 minutes in the morning. 20 minutes before the show. Like transcendental meditation? Transcendental. Yeah, TM. So you got your mantra. Got my mantra. Yeah. Don't tell anyone. Puppy chow. Puppy, Puppy chow. Puppy chow. <laughs> Oh my god! I can't believe I said that outside. Uh, it's obsequious, I'm obsequious, obsequious. <laughs> and uh, really, um, very economical with my energy the day of. And so you've got the let's just say the warm up acts. Maybe that's probably not uh, that's probably not a polite way to say it. But yeah, uh, opener. the, the openers. The you goes you me, got yeah. the openers. Yeah, you know you're you've got 15 minutes to go time. Yeah, what do you do in those 15 minutes? It's a good question. Uh, I'm usually managing uh, or practicing wardrobe malfunctions. So <laughs> practicing I, like I, Janet practicing, Jackson, like, like nipple I'll, exposure. I'll, yeah, I'll walk through sort of my most extreme movements with my wardrobe right. to make sure you know, like you know what I mean. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, what's it called? Like um, catastrophe uh, troubleshooting. Yeah, potentially, yeah, yeah. you know. <laughs> Um, I'll just close my eyes and meditate. <laughs> Troubleshooting, otherwise known as catastrophe sniping. Yeah, <laughs> catastrophe sniping. I like that. Um, and then sometimes something super normal because I think I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a strong believer in this. Everybody is. I'm not special because I believe proven science, but it's very Pavlovian. So it's like if all of a sudden I'm doing something I've never done before, before a show, then it's going to feel weird. So before I go on stage at the comedy store tonight on any given night, I'm looking at Instagram. I'm on Twitter. I'm texting. So I'll do something just kind of that I always do before I go on stage. Because if you put too much pressure on it, like this is a different show. I'm doing the same thing I've been doing the last four months. Right, right, right. You know what I mean? And it's like, it's basically my, my work isn't done tonight. My work was done three months ago. Right, right. I just have to show up. Yeah. I had, um, conversation with, uh, with uh, Paul Levesque, otherwise known as Triple H, the professional wrestler who was on this podcast. And he was telling me a story, uh, why am I blanking here? He just fought Manny Pacquiao, a Floyd Mayweather Jr. Yeah. And he was saying, he was telling me a story about how he, he visited Floyd in his dressing room right before a huge fight. And mm-hmm. he was just sitting there watching TV and he's like, yeah. Oh yeah, sit down. Like, yeah. let's have a conversation. Yeah. And Paul's like, I don't want to bother you. Like, yeah. I don't want you to get knocked out of the zone. Yeah. Like, blah, blah, blah. Aren't you nervous? And he's like, what good is being nervous going to do me? Mm-hmm. He's like, if I'm not ready now, I'm not well, yeah. ready. Then like, I'm, Hundred percent. So it's yeah. like if I need to do some weird ritual right now, then I'm I've got bigger problems. Yeah. You know. So I think for me, just keeping it very simple, and um, you know, if I'm shooting a special, my mom and dad or they have to come different nights, but um, we'll come. So I'll like take a picture for that or something that just feels benevolent and and connected. And I, you know, I'm very dorky about gratitude, and I'll just be grateful and I'll thank the crew and I'll talk to my director and just say thank you and. Like, just really do whatever I have to do to go out there and just, like, have a good time. I- I'm not taking myself seriously. I'm not stressed. I'm not in a zone. It's like, I know this backwards and forwards at this point. So the only work I have to do is just be relentlessly present. And this sounds so geeky, but I truly have to have a good time. Yeah. Um, Because my work is already done. Right. You know, that's kind of the the, the misery of stand-up and the joy of stand-up is that the when you're actually shooting it on TV, you're just showing off at that point. Right. It's, there's no, you're not in the trenches. Yeah. You know, everything works. You've done it. I, I, anything I do on show night, I've done a hundred times. Right. And I know it works. Well, th- that's part of the reason I love watching and I've seen, you know, Brian do this, but work on material. Yeah. When it's not a hundred percent. Yeah. And I find that fascinating. It's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. It's really. There is a, um, if you're a 
comedy nerd in any way. Uh, Kevin Nealon does a show at the Laugh Factory on Tuesday nights, and it's New Material Night. This is in Los Angeles. In Los Angeles, yes. So, um, and I, but I think they put videos on the Laugh Factory website or something, and it's comedians, you know, big comedians who are only allowed to do new material. And we will call each other out if I'm like, dude, I know you've been doing that joke. And I know, you know, you know, because we really try to be vulnerable and go up and do sort of fresh premises. And some of us are bombing and, you know, we're really, you know, struggling. And it's like being a beginner open micer again. Have you seen the documentary The Comedian? Yeah. With Jerry Seinfeld and Orny? Yeah. Yes. What is, how do you feel about that? I love it. I yeah. love it. I love Jerry. I think his work ethic is really um he just kind of nailed it i mean you know about this more than anyone obviously but his whole thing is just do the work it's yeah. there's no shortcuts there's no um you know there's a linear relationship in stand-up of how much you do it and how good you are it's yeah. super simple very yeah. merit driven um and so i like that i like his methodical approach i've learned a lot from him and been inspired by that and he's also you know i think it's good to glamorize health yeah. because i think in stand-up especially um, uh, drug addiction and alcoholism is so glamorized, you know, and Jerry's kind of, he does yoga and d drinks smoothies and he doesn't drink on stage. You know, he takes it very seriously. Stand up as a job. And I think a lot of people see it more as a hobby. Um, right. cause we all really just secretly want to be rock stars, but aren't <laughs> cool enough. Um, but you know, I think there was this generation of comedians, obviously in the seventies and eighties who were all on Coke and hookers and, now I think the pendulum has kind of swung. Everyone's like in therapy and drinks Jamba Juice and right. he's like vegan. And I think that Jerry in that documentary, sort of him uh, admitting how seriously he takes it, yeah. like the nerd in the class who gets a straight A and all the jocks hate, like, oh, he's a loser. Like it's yeah. high school all over again. Yeah. You know, it's like he makes trying look cool. Yeah. Um, and then Orny, you know, I think – is tricky because he just was so angry in that documentary. And I, I, I worry a little bit that people were like, Oh, that's how all comedians are. Right. You know, but it's a documentary. And if someone thinks that that's their generalization. Yeah. More there. You know? Than the yeah. But Orny is very, very funny. Yeah. And I think that that documentary, um, was a big, uh, what was it? What would it be when something is, um, uh, injury to his career? Yeah. Yeah. I think he would have been really big if it wasn't for that. Yeah. That was a fascinating documentary for those who haven't seen it, but it's basically tracking yeah. a younger up and coming comedian mm -hmm. with yeah. Jerry working yeah. on new material. Yes. Um, yes. And a friend's ex-girlfriend actually popped up. Yeah. I was watching it with him and he's like, wait, what? Is oh, that my, no. <laughs> no, no, she popped up. It was just her leading Jerry to the stage. And he's like, wait a second. Was that, <laughs> that, is is that my girlfriend? <laughs> Random. Bizarre, yeah, really bizarre. Chilling, hot uh, twist. Let me ask. Um, I don't want to chew up your entire afternoon. Uh, this is this is really fun. So maybe we'll do a round two sometime. But I'd love to ask you. Uh, number one, equine therapy. Yes, what, equine therapy is, is that one. The, the horse rides you. Is that one <laughs> you? How does this work? No, that's Ashley Madison. Oh, that's uh, uh, we've been through this. Catherine the Great. Yeah, right. So. <laughs> um, Okay. That I actually sounded much, <laughs> did not come out the way I intended it to. Sorry about that. That's um, my attempt at blue comedy. <laughs> and I think you nailed it. Yes. It was a successful attempt. So I don't think you have to wait eight weeks. I think you should go on tonight. You can be my warm up. What you makes say. me angry? Horses riding women. Let's talk about it. Yeah. So I, think this might interest you interest you because um and I hope that I do justice to it and explain it in a educated enough way to where it doesn't sound ridiculous but 
horses are prey animals. So they are incredibly attuned to any kind of threats. I mean, it's, I mean, they're constantly scanning for threats, which the human brain does also. And we try to like pretend it's not, but essentially, I mean, constantly they, a, a horse can look at a bobcat and tell if it's hungry or not. I mean, it's fight or flight 101. You know, yeah. they can literally read faces. They can read. Um, so when you are around a horse, a horse is codependent, if you yeah. will, uh, looking at you and their behavior depends on your behavior. Um, so essentially what you do in equine therapy is it's my goal was to practice being more direct and clear with my intention versus what I'm asking someone. Cause you know, a lot of times, and you can't see this if you're listening to this podcast, but I'll say like, um, no, I'm fine. I'm not mad. <laughs> I'm obviously mad. I right, mean, I'm, right. I don't, my face, I'm, I'm betraying my own face and you know, humans tend to be manipulative and passive aggressive and say one thing and mean another thing. And I think that's something, you know, that maybe people in my field maybe do more than, you know, you and what you do. You seem very like clear and, and, good, act, um, good actor, effective, great actor, <laughs> pathological liar, sociopath, American psycho, American history X. Um, but I found that I was really struggling with not being, with saying one thing and meaning another thing and being apologetic and not being present and not getting the results out of people that I wanted. There was a great documentary called Buck that's about Buck. the guy. Yes. It's about the guy that was the horse whisperer. Oh, cool. And essentially the whole premise of the documentary is that in order to control something, you have to give it more control. So in order to get power over someone, you have to empower them. So people bring these problem horses and they pulling them and trying to control them. And the first thing he does is give them more reins and give them the opportunity to make the right decision. So you can control something when you give them more control. So that really fascinated me, that documentary and the way that he was able to non-verbally uh, communicate with horses. Cause we waste so much time trying to verbally communicate with people. And a lot of times we just confuse them yeah. <laughs> and words are so subjective and, um, we talk way too much so people don't actually understand what we're saying. Uh, you know, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but I, you know, a lot of times when I'm writing a script or a TV show, I'll get notes from an executive and I'll, you know, I'm sure your editors or whatever, I'll be in a meeting for an hour and I'll walk out and I'm like, I have no idea. I have no idea what was no attempted idea. to have. We spoke for an hour. Communicated, yeah. I have no clue what my objective is. Yeah. I don't know what the notes are. I don't know if they liked it. Like we just bloviate to the point of just like be talking in circles. Yeah. So, um, I went in, um, uh, with the horses, uh, a girlfriend of mine took me for my birthday. And the first thing you do is you pick a horse. There's four horses. They all have various, uh, degrees of damage and backgrounds. And she tells you about each one and you choose your horse, which already says everything that she needs to know about you right? <laughs> based yeah. on the one that you choose. It's like a Rorschach test or right. something. So that's really interesting. And then the first objective is get the horses from one end to the uh, uh, corral to the other, which is probably like half of a football field. I mean, it's big. And you're like, how am I going to? Hello. That's the bat phone. That's the bat phone. <laughs> um, that's uh, Ashley Madison customer service. Uh, so I'm like, how do you get a horse? How do you get horses with no rain? from one end to the other, right? right? This is crazy yeah. without cajoling them or hitting them or uh, you can't use treats. I can't use any of my, I can't use charm. I can't use humor. Yeah. I can't use intelligence. I can't use any of the things that I rely on on a daily basis right. to manipulate and beguile people. Right. <laughs> and so essentially you have to use your intention. So you let them know 
we're going to the other end. You can use words if you want, but if, as long as you're saying something and meaning it, they're going to buy it. If you're going, you know, you can't see me doing this, but if you're going like, I need you to come with me. Is that okay? If you're asked, they're too not unclear. No, they're unclear. They don't trust you. You're not in charge. You don't have status. So I go and I'm, I'm leading them from one end to the other. They're following me and it's like magic. They're following me. And then halfway through, I start like, I say to my friend, Oh my God, they're following me. And they stopped. <laughs> and I was like, what, what just happened? She's like, you lost your connection to them because you focused on something else. I mean, it was just this like, it was like magic almost. Right. It was this amazing. So I just, it's a way to practice being present and connected and having a consistent intention with essentially these sort of animals that are basically a mirror to your psyche. That's very cool. It's super cool. When they, when you stop focusing, they stop focusing. And whenever you lie, they freeze. Yeah. Cause they don't understand lie because they just see she's, means something, but she's saying something else and they freeze. So as soon as you're disingenuous or pretend you're not scared and you are, they just freeze and look at you like, don't get it. They're just like, grow up. And you're like, Oh, sorry. Let me be clear. You know, it's this really cool, uh, sort of, um, way that I think, and I'm not saying I'm one of these people, but I think that smart people who have so much therapy and we've so over therapized, sometimes it's just like, keep it simple. Yeah. Bread and butter, another animal, just in a cage. Yeah. Yes or no. Yeah. It's sure. so primal and simple. I love it. I've almost learned so much from that than any other book or therapy I've ever done. That's, uh, for those people interested in, uh, a lot of this stuff, I, I'm, I'm really tempted to, to experience that. It's firsthand. here. It's in a, the, the yeah. woman that I go to is out in Topanga and it's awesome. Cool. It's called the reflective horse. You know, a lot of rehab patients do equine therapy, um, well, I was going to, I was going to say that, uh, <laughs> reflexive, I think it's reflective, <laughs> reflective, reflective horse. horse. I'm taking notes, uh, <laughs> is uh temple grandin Yeah, worked a lot with horses right. early on. And that's how she started to realize like, wow, I'm actually very good yes. at understanding yes. what they need, yep. what they're afraid of, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so fast. Now you mentioned book and then you said therapy. So I'll ask a book question, which is what book or books have you gifted to other people the most? Ooh, that's a great question. I like to pretend that I read fiction <laughs> and I just don't. Okay. So I went through this phase of giving people, cause I read one fiction book in the last like three years called Super Sad True Love Story by Gary Scheingart, which is phenomenal. Super sad true love story. Yes. Is Gary it Scheingart. Super sad? It's super sad, but very funny. And, uh, well, not super, it's, it's, um, it's like a dystopian satire on the future. Okay. And essentially it's like that we all have cell phones sort of embedded in our chests. And, um, as soon as I see you, I can know everything about you, your cholesterol, your genetics, your dad had a stroke. Like I can know your bank account, your, uh, credit report. Like essentially we know everything about everyone instantaneously. And it's just very interesting and like could happen. Yeah. Uh, and I read that because I had to, because a friend of mine who's sort of successful and has everything and had a birthday weekend and you can't get her anything. So her gift, the, our gift to her was we all had to read the same book, which was so <laughs> annoying. Don't be friends with rich celebrities. Um, it was Here's like, your homework Here's assignment. You, and I was like so annoyed and it ended up obviously being excellent. Gary Scheingart is phenomenal. So I started giving it to everyone more as a, ego as a congrats. I read fiction. As I read fiction, guys. Like I'm so erudite. I'm so cultured and as a pat on the back, but I, I don't want to mislead you into thinking I actually read fiction. I'm not that, um, 
normal. Uh, I you, I give the drama of the gifted child a lot uh, to people. You know, this book has come up. I bet. Just in the last week with a number of friends of mine who are yeah. very talented. Yeah. High performers. The, yes. W- so the it's drama of the, of the gifted the child. The drama of the gifted child. It's very uh, much... Yes, if you're a creative person, um, if you have any kind of anxiety or discomfort or just read it. It's hard to um, sum up. Uh, another one I give a lot is The Fantasy Bond, which is incredibly dense and clinical, but it's about uh, essentially what happens between ages one and three sort of ordains your whole life. Mm. Uh, it's kind of about attachment, um, like our attachment strategies based on how much eye contact we got as a child, how we were breastfed, how much physical contact we got, what our dynamics we walked into as a child and uh, how we see the world according to those formative years, Mm. which is pretty fascinating stuff Um, about, you know, I think it's when you're, I think I have a lot of shame around the fact that I'm almost like an attention seeker, if that makes any sense. Like being a comedian, there's just a little bit of shame for me when it's like, why do I have this much of a compulsion to be seen and heard? Like, what is this? And once I got a, got a handle on the fact that as a kid, I wasn't seen and heard enough. And I had this, I was trying to get these childhood needs met as an adult through my work. Hmm. Once I got a handle on that understanding, it made me need it less. Right. You know, I was like, Oh my God, I don't want to be famous. What am I doing? This is horrible. (laughs) Like you can't undo this, you know? Yeah. So I feel like, you know, I, because I read this book, it, I took like a year off of like being on TV because I didn't need that anymore. Hmm. I wasn't like, I just need to be seen as much as possible by as many people as possible. That's not mm-hmm. a healthy compulsion. And, and I, it backfired, uh, in some ways. So I was able to kind of take control of my, uh, self. The fantasy bond. Yeah. The fantasy bond. It's, um, Firestone, Robert Firestone, maybe. It's, yeah, it was recommended by, um, Mark Marin, actually. The, oh, no the, the epitome of mental health. <laughs> Mark is in large part responsible for me wanting to experiment with podcasting. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. I had such a great experience on his podcast, yeah. Joe Rogan's podcast, yeah. the Nerdist podcast. I was like, huh, oh, yeah. My this long form thing is really fun. Yeah, all my faves. Uh, yeah. So we were on tour together last summer and he was reading it. And uh, I was sort of, I think things come in your life exactly when you need them kind of yeah. thing. Like this book, The Drama of the Gifted Child, maybe there's something. Someone obviously the universe wants you to read this yeah. book, I guess. But uh, I was just in a receptive moment, and he was reading it, and I was like, "Boom!" And it was just the perfect time. Cool. Like, you know, I'll check it out. So I've been giving those. Uh, Another good one because yes. a lot of my friends are having kids. It's called the Continuum Concept, and it's about sort of attachment parenting. Is this basically like you don't you keep the kid with you twenty four seven until of, they crawl away, kind of thing? Kind of. The, yes, and the point is. What was it called? The Continuum? The Continuum Concept. Okay. And oddly, it was recommended by my equine therapy teacher. And it's about essentially the reason we... There's all sorts of chemical reasons like dopamine and oxytocin that are given off when we touch each other and especially people we love and bond with. But that if you always go to a child when they cry, they learn, if I need something, my needs will get met. I can trust that someone else will meet my needs. So attachment parenting is when your child cries, you go to them. You can't necessarily solve their problem, but they know that their voice is being heard and they feel heard. So they're more secure. They're more trusting of their environment. They don't deny their own reality as adults, Hmm. essentially. 
their expectations for the rest of their future. So why did your if you don't mind me asking, oh, sure. your equine therapy instructor? I thought you were gonna say X. This, I was like, uh oh. No, no, oh no. Why did your the uh, Equine uh, therapy recommend that? Yeah. We um were talking about attachment, I think, and we were talking about like, oh, the horse, like I I didn't have trust that the horse was going to follow me or something like I was like kept checking in and she's like you keep because equine therapy is so fascinating because of what comes up the way that we uh relate to horses it just says so much about how we try to run businesses marriages relation it's just a metaphor for everything because the way you do anything is the way you do Do everything. everything right so I kept checking in and doubting that the reality that the horse was following me. I was like incredulous that it was happening. And she's like, you really question reality. You always doubt yourself and you think that your perception is wrong and that, you know, um, that the Damocles sword is going to fall. You're always looking for the catastrophe. And so she was like, read this book. And I did to kind of get an understanding of like, oh, something must have happened that made me constantly be like, and it's true. I'm always waiting for the other shoe to drop when something's going well. I'm just like looking around instead of enjoying the moment. I'm just yeah. waiting for the catastrophe, Huh? you know? So it was sort of about all that. Blue comedy. <laughs> blue, no, blue, blue is really confusing to me. And the expression waiting for the other shoe to drop. And I'm just like. Interesting. Well, because you know what I always think of when I think of waiting for the other shoe to drop? What? Is shoes on a phone line in a bad huh. neighborhood. Oh. What do you think that means? <laughs> Wait a second. You know when what do, a- I, what do I think your envisioning that means or wait okay i always think of bad shoes in the neighborhood when i think of waiting for other shoe to drop that's the vision that comes to mind also do you know what it means when shoes are hanging in a bad neighborhood i don't but you've seen it right i always thought it was just kids being dicks but uh, (laughs) but i I, I think i'm probably totally wrong apparently it's because you know like in a you'll see a phone line you'll see a pair of sneakers hanging in bad neighborhoods Apparently, it's where someone died of heroin. Oh, God. So, you know, that's where the best heroin is. Oh, my God. So, when people see shoes hanging, thank you. I got it right. Ninja, I got it. Ninja on it approved. Hashtag on it. Um, and then you know that's where you should buy heroin because that's the purest stuff because it killed someone. That's insane. Insane. Blue comedy. (laughs) Blue comedy, indeed. (laughs) That was Travis, uh, Buer, i.e., Brewer making a cameo. Uh, when you think of the word successful, who's the first person who comes to mind? Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs. Is that weird? I like him anyway, though. So that was like on the tip of my brain. Brain. <laughs> when okay. However, if you had if you had to choose a second person, uh, it has to be the tip of my brain, doesn't it? I'm overthinking it. Well, I was just gonna say something that is just going to open up a weird can of worms because I was going to say Sheryl Sandberg because I feel like she had this well-rounded life and a personal life also, um, which recently imploded, um, which is not funny. Uh, But like someone who had, I think I used to define success as someone at the top of their field professionally only. And now I also view it as someone who has balance, like a good relationship with friends and family, you know, time has fun uh when they're not working they're actually not working um so that's why i was thinking about her drew barrymore this is really weird but i follow her on instagram she really seems to go to the beach a lot she's got a cosmetic she has two kids she seemed to have kind of nailed it i was just like god it's just that must be nice um 
Steve Jaws and Drew Barrymore. That's you know, and Sheryl Sandberg. That's a trifecta. Yeah, yeah, that's a, <laughs> success. That's a Motley, Motley Crew. Elon like Musk it. is a good one. Yeah, I mean, I don't really guy. know about his personal life, but he's in terms of you know making an impact. I think he's probably done a pretty good job. Yes, you're pretty he's, successful. He's uh, he's he's very good at betting the farm and pulling it off. Yeah, like I, I mean, he, I think he made 180 million from the sale of PayPal, and he took all of it and put it into put three it back companies. Into, yeah, and had to borrow money for rent. I yeah, think, he's like uh, Bill Burr. <laughs> he keeps it, it, making himself poor so he has to get rich again. Yeah, like yeah, how Bill bombs an comparison. to yeah. get you know because it's interesting because I want to all these comedians came to mind. Like I was thinking of Richard Pryor and Louis C.K. and Jerry Seinfeld and I, all these comedians were coming to mind. But I think for me, because I've seen the other what the success has cost them. Yeah, you you know how the sausage is made. Yes. So I don't know Alan or Steve Jobs is what it costs them emotionally, right. family wise. So I'm a little bit naive about it. Yeah. So in Jobs' case, a lot. A lot, I'm yeah. sure. Well, because yeah. yeah, and it was interesting because everybody always. I think the reason I sort of uh, latched on to him, I mean, it's obviously a pretty hacky, unoriginal, uh, inspiring figure. But I think when I was the boss for the first time, I think I, for some reason, looked up to him in a way because everyone was like, oh, he's an asshole. He's crazy. And I was like, I just, maybe everyone who's the boss is crazy because no one likes their boss because they're telling them to do work, you know? And I remember (laughs) people like, oh, he was such a dick. Like he would, you know, if something wasn't, perfect he'd make them fix it and i'd be like well what's so wrong with that Isn't that what you're supposed to do i mean that sounds like a great boss you yeah. know he sounds like a great leader you know and i hear all these horror stories and i think that i started getting paranoid that people thought i was difficult and i do you know and i'm like why is it difficult to say i think we can do better yeah. i think we can beat this joke like yeah. I, i'm not i'm just like i want this to be good all of our names are on it you're yeah. getting paid a tremendous amount of money to be here <laughs> why am i such a jerk you know and i think that through the lens of people's egos and and feelings and stuff. It just ends up being like, oh, he's crazy. He's an asshole. You yeah. know, I, I've yet to meet or know of one successful person who everyone doesn't think is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I think that's, yeah. That's I think, pretty much just I means think that's par for the course, yeah. generally speaking. Yeah. yeah. He's crazy. He's fucking nutty. He's a psycho. It's like, yeah. okay. Or you just catch someone on an off day. You yeah, know what I mean? Like, like I've, I've met some people who are celebrities who in person, every time I've seen them in interaction with other people with me, they've been great. Yeah. But, I'd read things about them online yeah. at some point where, you know, someone's like, Oh my God, you know, I was touring with this guy and he wouldn't sign fans autographs. He was a dick. Da, da, da. Yeah. I'm like, maybe he just had a bad day. Yeah. Like had you broke up with this girlfriend through. or like, who the, the hell other knows? Week I was know? in the airport and, um, you know, people were asking for pictures and I, I, my dad had just had a stroke and I was like, I'm just sorry. I can't. And I'm sure that those people are going, she's such an asshole. Like I'm yeah. sure they were, you yeah. know, but it's just not, you know, we just can't concern what do you think of me is none of my business etc you know yeah. louis ck i don't know if you know this it interests me uh he doesn't take photos with people really but he says i won't take a photo with you but i will talk to you for five minutes and he says huh. almost everybody declines oh i bet they just want the photo now why doesn't he do the photos i don't know i think it's I don't remember. Well, I guess, I'm, I guess maybe it's like if, if you're going to occupy this time, I want you to have to do some work as well. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Like, what am I going to get out of this? Like, it's, well, no, not even that, but it's just, you know, if we're going to have an exchange, yeah. let's have an exchange. Yeah. Let's, if you want to connect, let's really connect. I yeah. think, I mean, I'm sure he has a really interesting reason why he doesn't. Um, but, uh, I mean, cause also it's like, you, there's no, 
you know, I always say getting your picture taken is just so weird. I mean, especially on like a press line, like, you know, when actresses have to go down a press line and just like yeah. pose. I said, I, I mean, I've stopped kind of doing it because I'm like, unless someone gives me a healthy inner monologue to recite while I'm doing that, I'm not going to do it. Because what do you, you're just like, <laughs> look at me. Am I sexy? Am I thin enough? Do you want to have Like, it's just such unhealthy things that you're thinking. It's like what's in my head every time I read somewhere. Every time. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you ride the subway. So it's like, I'm sure when he's posing with someone, it's just like... Bart. You it's just, Bart in San Francisco. It's kind of like the Mad Max Marauder version of the subway. It's, I like that. It's carpeted. Why on earth would you... It's not the outdoor one, is it? Why would you ever carpet a place as filthy as a subway it's, car? I don't know. It's not the trolley. No. No, it's not it's the underground? thing. Yeah, huh. exactly. Yeah, you get a lot of musk on that. <laughs> the hyperloop yeah <laughs> the hypercarpet <laughs> right hypercarpet loop uh, the hypercarpet and uh so i think that yeah i think he just felt like he feels like you know you feel kind of violated someone just ambushing you and i mean he's with his kids and he's yeah. you know i, I think when you have a family i can only imagine it, it and really when so one person gets one then all of a sudden everybody yeah wants one and then you're in a you know so i think he just you know whatever for whatever reason i'm sure he has a um you know, a, a dignified reason for it, but nobody ever, he's like, I mean, to talk to Louis CK for five minutes could be the best five minutes of your life. Oh, yeah. And people are like, no, thanks. Yeah. We just want, I just wanted to Instagram it and show off that I met you. Yeah. This is about me. That's it's wild. not about you. I mean, this like culture of narcissism. I remember I was at the people's choice awards, which is like a really silly award show. Um, but you know, they have seat fillers. Wait, so, seat fillers. Seat fillers is like there's all the celebrities there, but then everyone else that's in the audience are like paid seat fillers who are super attractive, and <laughs> it's like all... it's like an Indonesian political rally. Yeah. They pay <laughs> people with like signs Probably. to come. Oh no, they absolutely do. That's so funny. Yeah, yeah no, I didn't know that. <laughs> I love you and I's reference points are so different. Yours are so much more impressive. Um, and uh, so they get paid fifty bucks to dress pretty and look good because they're going to be on camera, maybe in a pan shot or something. And so I'm sitting in front of. I want to say Ellen's in front of me, but Ellen had gone on stage. So this is actually so, but there's all these seat fillers, a beautiful, yeah. I, I can't tell who the, I mean, the seat fillers are more attractive than celebrities. And right. it's like, um, and so on stage is, I want to say Ellen and Chris Pine, who's okay. that, you know, whatever actor, famous actor. And I see these, um, people holding up their cameras and I'm like looking or trying to look over them and I see that they're taking selfies <laughs> of themselves. Right. And I'm like, no, the celebrities are that way. Yeah. yeah. You're not the celebrity. <laughs> I mean, peep, there's a celebrity two feet in front of them and they're taking a picture of themselves. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, you know, it's, it was, it was, it was crazy. Yeah. It's a bizarre Flip world. Flip it around. In. Yeah. It's a bizarre world we live in. Yeah. Um, just a, just a few last questions. Love it. If you, could put a billboard anywhere and have anything you want on the billboard. Text, photo. What would it be? Where would it be? Like a message I would want to get out? Or it could is be a message or it could be a photo. Of anything? Anything. Wow, this is a really good question. You should have a podcast. <laughs> um, if I could... Well, everyone's got their things, right? Yeah. Their thing causes. Sure. And my cause is dogs. Mm-hmm. that's everyone's got their thing and i'm sure that you know when something else touches me that will be my thing you mm-hmm. know when cancer touches my family or whatever alcoholism has touched my family but i haven't been compelled to like get super in the trenches of of that but um a statistic that really affected me two statistics that i just sort of wish people knew was that three million dogs die a year in shelters and 17 million a year get bought 
So it's just like right. That math, sh- the 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 three shouldn't exist. Crazy math. Yeah, yeah, it should be. Don't make me do this math. Yeah, fourteen a year are bought. Yeah, that should just be the statistic, right? Right. So uh, that was something that just hearing that I was like, God, that is such a waste. That's just so much d- death, and it's just so karmically bad for just this species. And so um. Uh, so yeah, that's something that sort of when I, I was always kind of trying to do dog rescue and I didn't really know how, and once I got that statistic, I felt kind of emboldened to be like, all right, I know exactly where my energy can go. It was very empowering to learn that. And another thing is, um, I work with this, uh, charity called the Beagle Freedom Project. Um, that's beagles that are tested on in labs, um, that the tests are usually inane and like, don't do much. It's just, you can say a product is tested on an animal and that it's safe. And this statistic kind of blew my mind, uh, which is that beagles are chosen to be, um, the dogs tested on in labs because they're the most forgiving of all dog breeds. So you can hurt them a bunch of times and they'll still give you the benefit of the doubt and they'll still keep forgiving you. It's like the most heart wrenching. Heartbreaking. So once I heard that, I was like, I'm in, you're preying on the weakest, sweetest. And so I got involved in that. And, uh, you know, I think that if you don't have kids, you yeah. know, and if you're busy like you and I are and you travel a lot, dogs is just a really sort of easy, rewarding, sort of healthy thing and, and those two. So I feel like I would just put those on billboards maybe. So what would it say? In China <laughs> at the Dog Meat Festival. <laughs> oh <my> <laughs> <laughs> That's probably the location I would pick. The yeah. Yulin Dog Meat Festival. <laughs> Makes me crazy. Is there a dog meat festival? Oh my god, the Yulin Dog Meat Festival. Yeah. So uh this obviously means you don't follow me on Instagram. Um, which is stop Yulin twenty fifteen is my uh big obsession right now. But yeah, there's a dog meat festival that's going on, I think, right now in China, uh, huh. where they actually kidnap people's domesticated dogs. Oh, so you just wake up and your dogs are gone, and then there's a dog meat festival. It's wow. I mean, here's the thing with China, they don't treat their people that great either, much yeah. less their dogs or their children. So so uh, that's a bigger issue that I'm not really qualified to talk about. But yeah, wow, dog uh, meat festival, dog meat festival. But whenever I tell people, whenever I'm like doing, I think a lot of people want to help dogs. It's just such an or animals or cats, anything. Right. It's, it's too broad, too big of an issue. And like as soon as they hear that, like beagles are the most people are like, how do I help? And a lot of people don't even know they're getting okay. tested on. Got it. So it could yeah. be like beagle. Beagles are the most tested on dog species. They're also the most forgiving. Forgiving. And then yes. tagline, whatever that is. WhitneyCummings.com. Buy there tickets. We there we go. <laughs> Download my stuff. So, download my stuff. I'm, no, I'm using it. I'm not actually donating anything. No, no, donate just to me. Yeah. Uh, I just got this to get your attention. I just wanted to bring this yeah. to your attention. Yeah. I just wanted to capture your heart so that I could then manipulate you into buying me a vacation home. So, <laughs> gotcha. I gotcha. That was that was a hell of a that was a nice political move. Circular. Yeah, no, it was great. It's like I'm glad you asked that question. Let me answer it a different way. Meaning, winningcomes.com. Uh, I also think that like donating to animals is just my drug of choice i guess i don't yeah. drink i mean i drank but i'm not you know um not like to excess and i don't do drugs like when i give money to Anna, i feel as good so right. i just feel like a lot of people like once they start it's you feel good if you give 20 bucks to whatever mm-hmm. you know it's like i think everyone would be it's, everybody wins what advice would you give to your 25 year old self <sighs> 25 um uh, there's so much advice. I would say don't wear any of what you're wearing right now. <laughs> Which was what? <laughs> Which was, you know, it's funny. I dressed like a boy from the seventies until I was like 29. <laughs> okay. New vintage, new balance sneakers, bell bottoms and a hoodie with a backpack. You know, I was very, 
that was my uniform, um, which was kind of like my shield of like, please don't see me as a sexual being. Like when I did stand up, you know, I right. tried to really like neutralize my like gender. Um, and, uh, stop drinking Diet Coke, stop drinking aspartame. I feel like I just missed the new thing of that. That was like, my early 20s in college was all artificial sweeteners and right. crap that I feel like I'm going to be – that's why I'm drinking the stupid beet juice. Um, <laughs> and I think it really compromised my productivity and my – you know, who knows what that was doing to my brain chemistry. Um, and uh, I think maybe the main thing is those mistakes are actually getting you to exactly where you want to go. Like They're that. rerouting you to your dreams, you know, and they're not – I hate the word failure because I always, I always think it's just like a step in the right yeah. direction, you know? So all the things that I agonized over, the jobs I didn't get. I mean, I like was in bed like crying my eyes out for like a week because I didn't get a job as a VH1 like host of a countdown. I mean, something that would just be so embarrassing. If you saw my Wikipedia t page, Dad, I'd be like, can we, you really not talk about that? It would have been a thing that I said, please don't talk about it on the podcast. It would have been so embarrassing now. But at the time, it was like, I was just... The holy grail. I was destroyed over it. You know, and I didn't realize, oh my God, in a couple years, like dodged I'm going to... I dodged a bullet. So I, I wish that I had kind of... I would have saved a lot of time and energy and anguish. So your mistakes are taking you where you want to go. Yes, exactly. I like it. Exactly. This has been great. Where can people learn more about you? Find Ashley Madison. <laughs> Ashley Madison. Dot <laughs> com. <laughs> White House dot porn. <laughs> I literally got this call the other day. My lawyer was like, hey, we need to buy your dot porn. And I was like, are we... We changing the game plan? <laughs> yeah, right. Is there something I don't know? Yeah, you're like I'm <laughs> not sure what you've opted down? me into. Yeah, but dot the dot porn is about to come out, so you have to buy your domain. You're welcome. Right. Thank you. I'll get on. That. Get yours. <laughs> Tim Ferriss dot porn. <laughs> Reroute it to your blog. <laughs> I'll send it to your <laughs> send it to your website. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so the. Home base is, where should people go? Uh, well, my tour dates and stuff are all WhitneyCummings.com. And then I have Twitter, Whitney uh -huh. Cummings. My Instagram is Whitney A. Cummings because Whitney Cummings is a 15-year-old black aspiring singer who is pretty talented, actually. and yeah. has a lot of followers, thanks to me. <laughs> nice. <laughs> has posted two photos. Um, but uh, yeah, Whitney A. Cummings. Got it. Yeah. And any last ask of the audience if you could ask the audience to do one thing what would it be um besides visit the website this is so provocative i'm like using parts of my brains i never use if i could ask the audience to do uh one thing what would it be um god that's a really deep question i have so many thoughts um i mean do you do your thing. <laughs> Live out loud. Be authentic. I don't know. Is that? Do, do you get, ask that question? I haven't heard I you do. ask. I haven't I heard you ask, ask it, that. I don't ask it too often. If you could ask the audience to do one thing, um, watch comedy. It's good for you. Okay. Now I'll I'll dig on that for a second. If somebody who's seen comedy occasionally but is not a connoisseur wants to enjoy comedy more or get more out of it if they're watching say a stand-up special uh -huh. what should they pay attention to or think of to see kind of an extra layer 
or ask themselves anything? I think that there's, I think, look at what offends you. If something offends you, watch Richard Pryor, watch Daniel Tosh, watch the most incendiary comedians, Bill Burr, maybe Louis C.K.'s monologue that he just did on SNL that there was this outcry because he talked about pedophiles or something. If something offends you, look inward. That's a sign that there's something there. I love it. What offends someone says a lot about them. Agreed. You know? Agreed. I think it was Mae West who said those who are shocked easily should be shocked more often. <laughs> I like that. I like that. <laughs> I love her. I have a huge poster of Mae West in my office. Um, but uh, who a lot of people think was a man and a lot of people think she was black. Huh. Interesting. The original Rachel Dolezal. Was that her name? The girl who just pretended to be black, the NAACP woman? I don't know. Um, yeah, she was like a... I was on a plane yesterday. I was way too deep into uh, the news. Um, but uh, yeah, I would say look at what offends you and it'll probably help you with some self-awareness. That's great. Yeah. I love it. Thank you so much for the time. This thanks, is great. Thanks. All right. To be continued. And until next time, thanks for listening, folks. For all the links, resources, and so on from this episode, just go to 4hourworkweek.com forward slash podcast. Toodaloo. Toodaloo.